Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Israel is struggling to tell the world that killing 10,000 babies is a justified and proportionate response to October 7th. The Americans are the ones, ironically, who rescued the Houthis from defeat. I think that what Netanyahu wants from Hezbollah is for Hassan Salah to say, Jihad, let's go. There are back channels that have opened up between Iran and the United States. So Blinken, not to reign in Israel, Blinken wants to, to rescue the genocide and ethnic cleansing. And Abdurrahman al-Sudeh said, Gaza is a fitna, don't talk about issues that you don't know. Muslims <laughs> mathematically and politically have the power, in my opinion, to punish Biden. The Democrats are gambling that the comfort of the American life will be enough to deter Muslims from compromising that for the sake of punishing Biden for the genocide that he's done. The chicken doesn't automatically lay down and die. Sometimes it runs around, you know, mm. with its with its neck. A headless chicken. A head, headless chicken. <laughs> and remember, and, and I promise this is where I finish. We have now passed three months of the Gaza slaughter, and according to the United Nations, Gaza has become uninhabitable. During these past few days, we have seen another frenetic series of diplomatic meetings by U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken in the region as the US looks to consolidate the status quo, the genocidal intent of the Israeli state. If it was unclear at the start of the conflict, it is pretty clear now that the US has given the green light to the Israelis to mete out their punishment. The Arab and Muslim states have, it seems, mostly acquiesced with the United States. In public, they condemn, whereas in private, they look the other way or in the case of Egypt, conspire with the US and Israel to make sure Gaza's resistance is erased. We have, however, seen signs that can be interpreted as further escalation. The Houthis in Yemen have now accosted over 20 ships in the Red Sea, and on Lebanon's, Lebanon's southern border, there remains an active engagement with Israeli soldiers. To help us understand the complexities of the current crisis, I have invited Sami Hamdi back into the studio. Sami is the director of the International Interest, a risk advisory. Just a quick reminder, 
please remember to subscribe to the channel and if you want to support our work, sign up to our Patreon. Sami Hamdi, Assalamu Alaikum Warahmatullah and welcome back to The Thinking Muslim. Thank you for having me back. Sami, it's great to have you with us. Now, a lot has happened since the last time we spoke uh, about the terrible situation in Gaza and, and the situation continues. We're now into the third month of this crisis. Today, I want to focus on some of what the commentators regard as being an escalation. Since we last met, a newer front has opened up, that of the Houthis in the Red Sea. The US has mustered together what they call a global coalition to police one of the most important waterways in the world in terms of trade. Uh, is this a substantial front, you think? And is Iran behind that activity? I think that First and foremost, it's important to highlight two things. The first is that the U.S. announced that it is trying to set up a coalition of more than 20 countries. But when it tried to set up this coalition, France withdrew, Spain withdrew, Australia withdrew, and so did other countries. And not even Saudi Arabia and the UAE joined this coalition. You would have thought they would, given that they are the ones who are also badly affected by what's happening in the Red Sea. And of course, they have their reasons, which we'll go into later on. Yeah. I think what the Houthis have done, and I say this reluctantly given the damage that they've done in Yemen, given that they are now in their seventh war to achieve hegemony for a select family because they believe only a family has a divine right to rule Yemen. They're in their seventh war to try to achieve that. Yeah. Nevertheless, the Houthi missiles on the Red Sea have had a sweeping impact on international trade. In my own capacity as a risk consultant for corporate clients around the world, all of my work for the past two weeks has been about the Red Sea, about whether ships should go through or not. And nearly every single client I've spoken to has decided to redirect their ships away from the Red Sea because they believe the US does not have the capacity to restore security in that Red Sea area, given the US is unable to convince even its own allies to join that particular coalition. That's around Africa. It's a, it's a going sort of around two Africa. week journey. Well. Some have even sent their ships back and said there's no point in even going around Africa because it's too expensive. Wow. But the point is that, and this is why there's talk now about land corridors through Saudi Arabia or Turkey announcing uh, today at the time of the recording that they're going to be building a railway from the Fao port, which is in Basra in Iraq, yeah. to go through to connect Iraq to Turkey. Mm. But the, the or Turkey, so the Turks don't get upset. <laughs> but, but the point is that when it comes to what the Houthis have done, they've had a seismic impact in terms of the course of the war, not necessarily because they've managed to apply significant pressure on the Israelis, albeit they have. There has been a significant reduction in the ships that are arriving on the Israeli ports because they always go through the Suez Canal. Yeah. But more so in demonstrating the limited options of the United States in its ability to enforce or impose itself as the linchpin of the global order. The inability of the US to discipline a militia in northern Yemen that is firing rockets on the Red Sea speaks volumes of how US power has generally declined and also the perception of the US amongst its own allies that the US should no longer lead the way, which brings back uh, memories of Macron calling NATO brain dead of Europe trying to pursue its own policy. Essentially, what the Houthis have demonstrated more than anything else is the inability of the US to rally the world's opinion behind its cause in the way that it was able to do once upon a time on Af 
Afghanistan, on Iraq, even if public opinion was against, still they managed to establish an international coalition. Mm -hmm. So I think this front is significant, but at the same time, it's also limited mm -hmm. in that one of the reasons why the nations won't join the US is not because they believe that the US is incapable or the US is not worth supporting, nor does it indicate they believe in a future where the US is not the linchpin. Rather, it's because they believe that the problem is not the Houthis. They believe the problem is not the rockets in the Red Sea. They believe the rockets in the Red Sea will stop when Biden reigns in Netanyahu. They believe that as soon as the genocide and ethnic cleansing attempt stops in Gaza, ships can go through the Red Sea once more. And that's why I think for France, which has already called for a ceasefire, I think for Spain, which has already announced that it's ready to recognize a Palestinian state, I think for Saudi Arabia, which is trying to sign a peace deal with the Houthis so that bin Salman can focus on Vision 2030, I think for the UAE, which doesn't want rockets to be fired on Abu Dhabi again, and all of them collectively are in agreement that if the issue was a security one, we would join the international coalition. But it's not. It's a stubbornness on the part of the Americans who refused to reign in Netanyahu. And therefore, while you've described it as a new front, they see it as a symptom that has opened up and that can be easily remedied by bringing about an end to what's happening in Gaza. What's the connection between the Houthis and the Iranians when it comes to these actions in the Red Sea? I think there is often a lazy assumption that the Houthis are, a, 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 the, uh, the Iranians run the Houthis by remote control. Right. I think that while that can largely be said to be true in Iran's relationship with the Iraqi militias, mm. in Iran's relationship with the militias in Syria, mm. in Iran's, and I'll upset many Lebanese by saying this, in Iran's relationship with Hezbollah, mm. you'll note, for example, that Hassan Nasrallah did not intervene in Syria until the Iranians told him to cross over mm. to break the back of the Free Syria Army. And Hassan Nasrallah said, I obey and I obey. And he went and he crossed over and he broke the back of the Syrians who were trying to topple Bashar al-Assad's uh, regime that has committed its own massacres in Syria or the like. I think that when it comes to Iran, Iran's relationship with the Houthis is one of mutual respect there certainly is a hierarchy where Iran's interests do take priority. We saw that the Houthis pulled off on offensives that they believe to be of paramount importance for context. Mm. There is a province in Yemen called Ma'rib. Ma'rib has a lot of oil. Right. It's near the areas where the Houthis control. The Houthis, in order to achieve autonomy, they need to take Ma'rib because it's the only way they will be able to have resource autonomy. Otherwise, if they get autonomy in, in the lands they have now, they will be dependent upon Saudi Arabia to the north and dependent upon a southern state that might emerge with the support of the UAE and backed by the Israelis who have already established military bases in some of the islands. Mm. When the Houthis believe Ma'rib to be of paramount importance, when the Iranians asked them to hold off because now they were talking to the Saudis, Houthis pulled off at the request of the Iranians. So there certainly is a hierarchy. But there is also mutual respect between the two. And the reason why I highlight the word mutual respect is because the dynamics of that relationship does not exist between Saudi or any of its allies. Really? Does not exist between UAE and any of its allies. The relation between Saudi and its allies is about paychecks. And even when they give the paycheck, they find their allies betray them later on. With the Houthis and the Iranians, it's a mutual respect based on an ideological conviction that resembles very closely to the 12 Shi'i thought, which is that we are collectively Ahl al-Bayt who are fighting together for the revenge of al-Husayn and to re-establish some. And they believe that wholeheartedly and that results in a commonality between them. That means the Houthis willingly align themselves with Iranian interests, yeah. which is why I think the Americans themselves acknowledge that the solution to the Red Sea is not to talk to Tehran because Tehran doesn't have the power to get the Houthis to stop. 
I think that this is a unilateral action as well on the part of the Houthis that the Iranians are supporting, but not something the Iranians have ordered because the Houthis ideologically do believe in Palestine. Ideologically, they do believe in Gaza. And somebody, you know, you see some comments sometimes, they say the Houthis are doing it for popularity and for show. I think that's true to some extent. I think they are aware that their popularity is soaring in the Muslim world that has no idea why Yemen plunged into war in the first place, that believes somehow that it was because the Saudis started bombing Yemen. I'm not defending the Saudis here, but I'm saying as a result of an ummah that does not pay attention to the affairs of the other limbs of the ummah, mm. as a result of their ignorance of what's happening in the ummah and the intricate details, they are led to very simplistic conclusions, such as in this case, that Houthis are good because they are supporting Palestine and Gaza. Mm. The Houthis do support Palestine and Gaza. They took on that action. They do believe that it will help them in public opinion. But in the words of Muhammad Ali al-Houthi, he made a good point. He said, if you say we're doing it for popularity and public opinion, why don't you do the same thing and get public opinion and popularity instead? Mm. Why don't you, they say, Masrahiya, you're doing it for show. Okay, at least you do a show then. You're not doing anything at the moment. At least do a show. But I also think the Houthis have a conviction. Uh, again, I say it reluctantly because I know how much Yemenis have suffered in those seven wars that are designed to establish a rule in which national consensus is less than the word of Abd al-Malik al-Houthi. But nevertheless, they are doing it for reasons that they believe are for Palestine, are for Al-Quds. They believe one day it is the Shia's turn to take over Mecca, Medina, that there should be a Shia liberation of Al-Aqsa. That might upset some people listening, but this is their belief that they are the ones entitled to it. Khomeini once said in his book, he said, Allah gave the caliphate to the Kurds, to the Arabs, to the Turks. And to, this is the time now for the Persians, for our line of thought to do so. Yeah. But the, in terms of to answer your question directly, even though it sounds like you said, where's your ear? And I did that. <laughs> the point is that the Iranians are supportive, sympathetic, but Houthis do have agency. And this is largely governed by their own desires. The Houthis are probably in control of most of Yemen now. And at this stage... The United States has not attacked the Houthis on Yemeni soil. There has been uh, a sinking of a Houthi vessel uh, in recent in recent days, um, and there is some discussion about maybe escalating to mainland Yemen. I mean, how plausible do you think that is on behalf of U.S. and would that count as a further escalation? I think that when it comes to Houthi control over Yemen, I don't think they control most of Yemen or perhaps even half of Yemen. I think that Ta'iz, this the second largest city, is still under a blockade from the Houthis. Yeah. Hadramaut, uh, the large province in the east, is being fought over by Saudi and UAE, not by the Houthis. Really? It's by Saudi groups and, and pro-UAE groups who are fighting over control of Hadramaut. The UAE want to include it in a southern state of Yemen. The Saudis don't want to because they don't trust the Emiratis and they want to maintain an access way through Hadramaut down towards the sea that bypasses Bab al-Mandab where the Houthis are firing those missiles in the Red Sea. They want a way to bypass by land the threat of the Houthis. I think that one of the reasons that the Americans are less inclined to go into a front against the Yemenis or against the Houthis in Yemen is for a number of reasons. The first is, it's worth noting that when the Houthis toppled the internationally recognized government, when they stormed into Sana'a in 2015, when the Yemeni parties came together, mm. Ali Abdullah Saleh in Yemen is toppled by a popular revolution, mm. albeit slightly nudged by the Saudis and the like, who were worried that the Arab Spring was spreading. Yemeni parties come together. Saudis think this time we won't make the mistake like Egypt and the like. Let's get the parties together, get them to have an agreement and move forward from there. So all the parties, including the Houthis, they come together for a national dialogue. The Houthis had just been defeated in their sixth attempt 
to launch a war in order to establish themselves. Mm. So they were in Sa'da in northern Yemen, essentially, you know, suffering from the Yemeni army who were pushing in and closing in. Mm. The Yemeni army withdrew. The Qataris believed it was a good idea to get the Houthis on board with this national dialogue. Everybody said, okay, let the Houthis participate. Mm. During those two years of negotiations, the Houthis engaged in the process, they engaged in the discussions while retaking control of Sada and the other states in the north, removing the other factions and remnant factions of the army, regaining their control over the stronghold. When eventually they got close to signing the National Dialogue Agreement, which all Yemeni parties and civil societies were about to sign, the Houthis at that point had finally recovered their strength and they decided to pull out of the National Dialogue. There was a bit of skirmishes here and there, a few assassinations here and there, and the Houthis said, we're leaving, we're not going to be part of this National Dialogue. Mm. The Houthis eventually allied with the former dictator Ali Abdullah Saleh, who was livid that he'd been toppled by his people after ruling for more than 20 years. Ali Abdullah Saleh gave them access to the army, the Houthis, they marched out of Sa'da, they took Jauf and Amran in the north. Yeah. Jauf and Amran fell very easily because the tribes there were worried. They didn't know if the Saudis felt who was worse, Ikhwan or Houthis. Mm. They were worried, they said maybe they prefer the Houthis over Ikhwan, so we're not going to go and rescue Ikhwan, we're not going to rescue the parties. Houthis strolled into Jauf and Amran, they entered the capital, they stormed the capital and they went in. When they went into the capital and they toppled the internationally recognized government, there was a very naive view amongst those of the national dialogue that the Americans would rescue the internationally recognized government, that the Americans would back a democratic process, that they would back the national dialogue or the like. Instead, John Kerry is on record as saying that the Houthis can be viable allies in the fight against terrorism, suggesting an inclination to work with the Houthis. Not only that, the Houthis were seen as an extension of Iran and the Democrats are heavily in favor of an Iran deal of a negotiation with Iran, which is why Obama in 2014, 2015, one of the concessions he made to Iran was to incorporate the Iranian militias, the pro-Iran militias in Iraq into the Iraqi army, right. effectively handing over the Iraqi army to the Iranians in exchange for a deal, a peace deal, because the Democrats believe the problem is Saudi, not Iran, mm. and that Iran is just reacting to what the Saudis are doing themselves. Mm. The reason why I mentioned that context is to bring it back to this point. Do the Americans really want to fight the Houthis? Do they really believe that the Houthis are such a horrible entity that they should enter Yemen to fight? Or do they believe the Houthis, as they suggested in 2014, could be a viable ally for the Americans as part of this framework of cooperation with the Iranians under the idea of an Iranian deal? That's why the Americans have no interest in reigniting a war in Yemen by going after the Houthis on Yemeni territory, especially at a time when the Houthis and the Saudis are about to sign a peace agreement yeah. in Muscat yeah. to, in order to ensure that deal. So I think the Americans don't have an appetite to attack the Houthis on the ground. The Americans are struggling to get international support to attack the Houthis in the Red Sea itself. Think about it, Jala. Mm. A ragtag group of militias from the perspective of the Americans, the Houthis have survived nine years of bombardment. I will no longer call them ragtag. I'll be honest. <laughs> but the Americans, America, wama adrak, America, is struggling to contain a ragtag militia in Yemen from firing missiles into the Red Sea. Yeah. Which, so when you ask the question, will they go into Yemen and start bombing the Houthi position? If you can't even prevent those rocket attacks, what makes you think you're capable of a campaign inside Yemen itself and reigniting? Not only that, here's the third point I want to make. Yeah. You're so close to elections. Why would you send your boys to fight abroad in a war where the American people are not in support for? And you know historically that the more American soldiers die, the faster you fall in the polls and the less likely you're going to win an election. So you see all of these dynamics suggest that the Americans won't go into Yemen and won't go bombard the Houthi. Having said that, Allah is the only one who knows the unknown. 
This is an analysis of the dynamics that we see before us. Seeing Biden's stubbornness on Israel, seeing the way that he's adamantly refusing the advice of those around him that this is becoming a disaster and he needs to act to rein in the Israelis, given his very pro-Zionist ideals, it's not far-fetched, maybe a 1% chance that Biden says, forget it, go in and attack the Yemenis either, let's just go for it because I love the Israelis more than I love anybody else. But that's the general point in that I don't think the Americans have any appetite or desire or even in the past. One thing worth noting here is, and I know I've gone on about this point, but I'm doing this to encourage people to read about Yemen. Mm. So they finally open it and they read about what happened. Mm. In 2018, the Houthis were on the back foot. The UAE and Saudi Arabia finally decided to do a concerted push to push back against the Houthis. This is before the UAE changed its mind and decided to go for separatism. They pushed the Houthis back to Hudaydah. For those who don't know the map, Hudaydah is not too far from the capital Sana'a. It's the port city. But if they had taken Hudaydah, Sana'a is cut off from the sea. They can blockade Sana'a and kick the Houthis out and restore the internationally recognized government. When Hudaydah was about to fall, it was the Americans and the United Nations that rushed in and stopped the forces from kicking out the Houthis. There was a sort of unusual panic on the part of the Americans that said, wait a minute, do we really want the Houthis to be defeated in Hudaydah? And therefore they rescued the Houthis from the cusp of defeat and dragged the internationally recognized government by the collar to negotiations in Stockholm. The Houthis spent the period of negotiations re-entrenching and rearming themselves. They went to Stockholm, they signed an agreement. Khaled al-Yamani, the foreign minister at the time, held up the hands of the Houthis and he said, we are brothers, this was just a, a civil strife and we're ready for peace. As soon as the UN went into Hodeida to implement the agreement, the Houthis opened fire on the, on, the, on the UN convoys and the like, and the Houthis went back to war again. The point here being is 2018 was a turning point for many people where people began to say, are the Americans truly against the Houthis? Or are the Americans in favor essentially of working with whoever is willing to work with them? And that's why many people say that the Americans are the ones, ironically, who rescued the Houthis from defeat. And the reason why I say that, so people say, What's Sam, why is Sammy bring all this yeah, stuff in? Yeah. The reason why I say it is to answer your question. Americans believe there is a capacity to work with the Houthis. Right. They've always believed there's a capacity to work with the Houthis. They also believe the Houthis are reacting to Gaza and are not inherently against the Americans. Therefore, there's no need to go into Yemen, given that's not a symptom, not the disease. We deal with Gaza, the Houthis will fall in line. From your analysis, it seems that um, in many ways, the United States, uh, despite the fact that at, at one stage, the Saudis were fighting the Houthis at a, at a very ferocious rate. I mean, they were carpet bombing parts of, of Yemen. And we know that it caused immense destruction across the country. Uh, the United States was uh, in a way supporting or at least semi-supporting the Houthis and uh, enabling them at least to remain uh, in control of swathes of, of Yemen. Explain that, untangle that in my mind. It, you know, Saudi Arabia, strongest ally of America in the region. Saudi Arabia is fighting the Houthis, yet America uh, is playing this uh, this double game uh, in in supporting uh, Saudi uh, Saudi opponents, especially. I mean, 2018. We're talking about Trump's era, right? So, you know, the Republican Party were extremely close to the Saudis. Ex- explain that to me. I don't think it's necessarily that the Americans have any love for the Houthis or the Iranians, really? or that the Americans really care about what happens in Yemen. I think a lot of it had to do with the manner Saudi went about Yemen. Okay. They did it in such a way that nobody could defend it. Really? They went in. Let's put it bluntly. 
The, Amer- the Saudis did not go in to rescue the internationally recognized government. Saudis went in because they were terrified of the Houthis take over Sana'a. Then they are effectively encircled by the Iranians, which we've talked about in other podcasts. The Shia before. Crescent. The Shia Crescent. Shia Crescent it mainly goes towards Syria, Lebanon. This is more a pincer that goes round that locks the, the Saudis in. Yeah. So the Saudis were terrified. So they said, we need this internationally recognized government and we need to restore it because they are better than the Houthis. We thought the Houthis were okay. Mm-hmm. They made a deal with the Houthis in 2009. Anybody can look at the Damaj agreement. Then the Houthis, of course, reneged on it. And then eventually they ended up into war. And the Saudis panicked when they saw the Houthis. The Houthis, by the way, they got to the gates of Aden in the south in a very short period of time. If they had taken Aden in the south, or Aden, I think this is the English English way of Mm -hmm. saying it, Mm -hmm. then they would have taken over essentially all of Yemen, or most of Yemen, and they would have been the de facto ruler. Saudis intervened when the Houthis got to the gates of Aden. They were hesitant before then. I don't think it's that the Americans care what happens to Yemen or that they care about the Houthis or even that they care about the Saudis. I think it was more the fact that there was so much international attention on what was happening in Yemen because of the tactics the Saudis used. The Saudis demonstrated that they really didn't really care about the Yemenis at all. Mm. As you said, they were carpet bombing. They were destroying hospitals. They were destroying... And even those who support the internationally recognized government started to become very uncomfortable. Yes, Saudi is the ally of the internationally recognized government. But is this really the only way you guys have in order to rescue the internationally recognized government? And that's why they ended up turning on the Saudis themselves. The Saudis created this mood where even charity organizations, whenever they would talk about Yemen, would never mention the Houthi coup or what the Houthis did. They would only mention what Saudi Arabia was doing. And legitimately so, because the Saudi carnage and destruction in Yemen was so much that even to have a discussion as to why the Saudis were there in the first place became irrelevant because people said, okay, Houthis did a coup, but that doesn't mean you have to do very similar to what we're talking about Gaza and Israel and in terms of what, what Israel is yeah. doing in Gaza in response to October 7th. But the reason why I say this is that for the Americans is very pragmatic. 2018, yes, Trump was in power, but Trump was also trying to renegotiate the Iranian deal. In the beginning, Trump, when he came in, when he tore up the Iran deal, he didn't say, I'm doing it because I want to go to war with Iran. He said, I'm doing it to negotiate a better deal with Iran. And that's why it's quite fascinating that Trump, although he was considered to be an ally of the Saudis and UAE and was seen to be somebody who would enable them to unleash against Iran, Mm. the reality is he really did. Aside from assassinating Qasem Soleimani, it's hard to... And Qasem Soleimani was a reaction to Iranian militias. It wasn't Trump goading them. It was Qasem Soleimani organizing the Iraqi militias, the Iranian militias, going into Baghdad, in the green zone, storming the US embassy. And Trump said, whoa, guys, you've gone too far. How can you humiliate me on the public stage? Mm. Like, you, 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 you humiliate me. I have to humiliate you and he went and then it, it sort of toned down after that yeah. but the, the point i'm making is that with the americans in yemen it's not that they have a strategy they have no strategy in yemen but what they are aware of they don't believe that their interests lie in a complete victory for one party over the other they don't believe that this internationally recognized government is worth rescuing mm-hmm. and they don't believe the houthis are necessarily a bad it's that it's a bad thing if the houthis win either yeah. and that's why when they saw the opportunity in 2018 to negotiate a peace they felt it was a way to reassert themselves on an issue that they felt they were losing control over because the saudis were shutting them out because the iranians were no longer negotiating on the iran deal it was their way of reasserting themselves and they brokered a stockholm deal agreement that ended up collapsing within a year uh, so let's uh, talk about um this idea that there may be further escalation. So you've settled the issue of, of the Houthis and the seriousness of the potential for that to, to escalate. Uh, recently, there was a killing of Saleh al-Aruri uh, by an Israeli, Israeli drone in southern Beirut. Um, and again, this has raised the specter of Hezbollah retaliation. Um, as we know, that Hezbollah are in effect the de, fo, de facto security apparatus of, of Lebanon. Um, 
Yet we haven't seen any substantial moves by Hezbollah since the, the, uh, the assassination of this Hamas leader. How do you interpret that? I think to put it bluntly, Hezbollah knows full well that the assassination of Saleh al-Aruri on Lebanese territory is designed to provoke Hezbollah into an all-out war that will lock in the Americans into the conflict because Netanyahu is concerned the Americans are no longer as committed as they were yesterday. Mm. You'll note that the aircraft carrier that was sent to the Mediterranean has been withdrawn or was withdrawn the day before Salah al-Aruri was assassinated in Lebanon itself. The Israelis are concerned that American patience is running out, that the Americans are no longer as keen on the genocide and ethnic cleansing in the, in the way they were on the first day. And they are concerned that pressure is being brought to bear on the Israelis in order to stop the genocide and ethnic cleansing. And Netanyahu believes that that will result in an end to the war. And the only way to prolong the war is to expand it. And that's why I think, and I know it sounds very strange to say it, I think that what Netanyahu wants from Hezbollah is for Hassan Salah to say, Jihad, let's go, we're going. Into, because that will mean, that will make their conflict more profitable or more easier to market to the world. Right now, think about it. People are not sympathizing with the Palestinian cause. People are sympathizing with the Palestinians. Mm. People are not sympathizing with the right of the Palestinians to go back to their land yet. It's important to make this distinction. Mm. They're sympathizing with the plight of the Palestinians because they believe regardless of the issue, so they're not making a determination on the issue, mm. these, these people now who are now talking about Palestine. Yeah. They're not saying Palestinians now should be allowed to go back to their land. Yeah. They're saying whatever the issue between Palestine and Israel is, Palestinians don't deserve to be killed in this manner. Yeah. That's a very important distinction to make. Why? Because it answers this question. Israel is struggling to tell the world that killing 10,000 babies is a justified and proportionate response to October 7th. But when you flip that script and say that the mullahs of Hezbollah are now crossing over Lebanon and invading Israel against us, it becomes much easier for Israel to market to the world that it is once again the victim against these very dangerous Arabs who are coming in because they want to commit genocide against the Jews. Mm. Hezbollah is well aware of that and Netanyahu is well aware of it, which is why Netanyahu, what he wants, and I know this is going to sound quite horrific to say, and this is very difficult for me to say. Yeah. What Netanyahu believes is that if things continue on their current course, the window for his genocide is closing. France is no longer sympathetic. Belgium has already called for sanctions. Spain has already called for recognition of Palestinian state. David Cameron has said the casualties are not worth what, what Israel shouldn't be, should take more care. And what Israel has done is not proportionate. We've seen, for example, the whole global public opinion has shifted. We saw in the last UN vote that everybody except the US and a couple of three, four countries that are essentially US states, everybody voted against the Israelis. Yeah. Netanyahu knows his window is closing. Domestic criticism is getting louder in Israel itself. We've seen uh, former heads of intelligence coming out and saying Netanyahu has no strategy. Netanyahu has compromised Israeli security. Netanyahu needs to go. There are protests in Tel Aviv. Thousands of people asking for Netanyahu to go. We're seeing Biden fall in the polls and the Democrats panic about their prospects for the elections. And Netanyahu believes that if things continue as they are now, the window of opportunity for genocide and ethnic cleansing is closing and he believes that Blinken's visit to the Middle East 
is a last gasp effort to expand that window in order to try to win more time for Netanyahu to make a last ditch effort to bomb the Palestinians into swarming onto that Rafah border on Egypt and enter Egypt itself. And Sisi is saying absolutely not. Nobody crosses unless they pay $9,000 to cross the border. But nobody crosses this border. I'm not taking in those particular Palestinians. So Netanyahu has deduced that given that that window is closing, given the public opinion is turning, given the Americans are hesitating, the only way he can extend this war is to try to provoke Iran and Hezbollah into an open conflict that will force the Americans to send in troops against Hezbollah that will make the whole narrative change from Palestinians being killed to these Muslims coming in and want to commit genocide against the Jews or the like. Netanyahu believes this is the only way to do so. And that's why Hassan Nasrallah, and again, you asked me the question to analyze it. Mm. I'm not giving a judgment. I'm not talking morally. I'm talking amorally, mm. just analyzing the dynamics or the like. Hassan Nasrallah has deduced, I will not give Netanyahu what he wants. I will not give him an open war because we have a saying in Arabic, he's a dikal mathbuh. He is the chicken. You know when you when you sacrifice a chicken, mm. the chicken doesn't automatically lay down and die. Sometimes it runs around. You know mm. with its with its neck. A headless chicken. A head, headless chicken. <laughs> we have it in English as well. We have it in English as well. <laughs> so the headless chicken that Netanyahu knows he is the one in trouble, and that's why Hassan Salah doesn't want to enter an open. I know that sounds cold and dark, given that people will say what Sami is effectively saying is that we're getting close to the number of acceptable Palestinians to be killed. Mm. That may be one way to interpret it, but what I'm saying is. If these Iranian proxies respond to Netanyahu's provocations, yeah. I think whereas the war might end in two weeks with a ceasefire, Netanyahu will get an additional six months with US troops going in, and that might eventually, eventually plunge the whole region into a crisis of war. So when Blinken says, I'm going there to make sure the conflict doesn't spread, he means it in a dark way. Mm. But I agree with him insofar as Netanyahu... He, he doesn't believe it this way, but this is the way I would say the same statement, but means something different. Mm. That Netanyahu wants to open new fronts in the war because as it stands, his political future is about to go up in flames mm. and he's looking for any desperate attempt now to find a way to survive. And he believes the only way to do that is to provoke by committing assassinations on Lebanese territory, mm. to force Hezbollah to respond. When they didn't respond, they, they assassinated a Hezbollah commander. Mm -hmm. Hezbollah still didn't respond. They kept it as it is. I think that while people are looking at it and saying, why is Hezbollah not doing anything? I think Netanyahu is in his office going, why won't these guys respond? Really? Because I'm in trouble here. So Sami, what you say there seems to imply that Hassan Nasrullah is a master strategist. He's showing restraint uh, because he doesn't want to give Netanyahu what he wants from, from this conflict. Is that how we should interpret uh, Nasrullah's intentions here? Absolutely not. I think the main reason why Hassan Nasrallah doesn't want to escalate is because he believes he doesn't have the capacity to escalate. Mm. It's important to remember that before the, the events of October 7th, Iran was pursuing de-escalation in the region. They were pursuing rapprochement with Saudi Arabia. They were looking to entrench the Houthis. Mm. They were looking to, make, to try to get Assad rehabilitated. One of the con concessions they demanded of Mohammed bin Salman yeah. was that he brings back, the Saudi Crown Prince, was that he brings back Assad into the Arab League. The Iranians were not looking for confrontation because they were tired and they believed their resources were stretched. They don't believe they have the capacity in order to pressure the Israelis. And one of the reasons that it is alleged that Israel began its ground offensive, you'll remember in the beginning, there was a lot of hesitation of Israel doing so, is because according to a Reuters article, three days before Israel launched its ground invasion, yeah. 
Haniya, the head of the Hamas Politburo, went to Tehran to ask for further assistance. And the quote is that Khamenei said to him, you didn't consult us, you didn't ask us, you didn't tell us this was going to happen. Mm. This is the maximum you're going to get from us, which is a bit of skirmishes on the border in order to show some strength to the Israelis to try to limit the worst of it. And the Israelis and the Americans got wind of it through spies or whatever it is. They got wind of the conversation. The Israelis said, aha, okay, so... This is the maximum Iran is going to do. Let's go in for the ground invasion. And that's why Hassan al-Salallah has been humiliated time and time again in that he keeps talking about red lines. Israel keep violate, violating those red lines yeah. and Hassan al-Salallah does nothing. So I think it's less about strategic hmm. genius or the like. Hmm. It's much more that they don't have the capacity to do so. And that's why Netanyahu is trying to aggressively provoke them hmm. into a position where even though they don't have the capacity, they have no choice but to retaliate to the Israelis, which is why they went straight inside Lebanon to attack Saleh al-Aruri to, to and to also kill Hezbollah commanders to say to them, okay, you might not have the capacity, but come at me anyway. Yeah. And that's what they're trying. So it's not about strategic genius. It's more that they didn't want to get involved and now Netanyahu is trying his trump card, a last gasp effort to provoke them into a conflict and, they don't want. And what do you make of uh, commentary in the Western press that suggests that there are back channels that have opened up between Iran and the United States? I think back channels have always been there. I don't think it would be anything new. I think that the Iranians and the Americans have been talking regularly throughout this. I think all of the regional powers have been talking to the US regularly about this. Erdogan himself once said, you know, a few weeks back, he said, our allies are telling us that when all this is over, Netanyahu will no longer be in power. And I think that's from what the US said. And it was also mentioned in the political article three weeks into the conflict that Biden's reaction when he saw the Israeli response was, Netanyahu is really frustrating to work with will stand with the Israelis, but Netanyahu can't be allowed to stay in power again. And they're hoping that Benny Gantz will take over after him as well. So I think the back channels are certainly there. I also think it's because of these back channels that the Americans have not been as swift to pressure the Israelis. Because through these back channels, they're also hearing from some Muslim nations mm. that we don't really care what's happening in Gaza. If it's Hamas, go after them. Don't worry about us. We, you know, we're, we're happy to see it go. And... Yeah. You know, we can mention these countries like later on or the like, but but yeah. certainly in, in these back, it's important to note that while the world is telling Biden he's isolated, Biden is receiving messages from Muslim countries that are telling him Gaza is really not a priority for us. So go get them if you want. And do you think the United States certainly does not want an escalation to Hezbollah to others? I mean, there was U.S. action in Iraq. There was a killing of uh, Abu Taqwa, Mushtaq. Talib al-Saidi, uh, who was uh, said to be responsible for a string of attacks on U.S. bases across Iraq. So there was direct action against a Iran-friendly ally in Iraq. And that does sound like uh, at least a further escalation. How do, you, how, do you, how do you view that? I think that one of the things Biden has been firm, upon, firm on with regards to what's happening in Gaza is preventing the Israelis from opening a front with Lebanon. Right. There have been reports in Israeli press itself which have said that while... Israelis or Netanyahu has wanted to open a front with Lebanon, including even in the early stages of this genocide and ethnic cleansing, Biden was adamantly against it and made Netanyahu back down. Apparently for the Americans, they absolutely do not want this to escalate. They want this to remain limited to Israel and Gaza. They don't want to be in a situation where they get dragged into a regional war or a regional conflict. And that's why they're caught in this, I don't want to say difficult position. You can never be in a difficult position if you support genocide and ethnic cleansing. 
but they're caught in this calculation, which is how can we come out of this having to be being seen as having given 100% support for Israel because the Jewish vote in the US matters, APAC matters in the US mm. more so than the Muslim vote. I don't think Biden acknowledges there's even a Muslim vote in, in the US because they're not a united body or united bloc yeah. in the way that APAC is. But I think it's more the Americans are saying, we're going to give full support for the Israelis. We just need to see a plan. What's your strategy? And as Netanyahu has failed to give a plan, they become more and more concerned about where this is going. But I think for the Americans, the red line for the Americans is not genocide or ethnic cleansing. They're more than happy to see that happen. They don't mind that. They're happy to facilitate it and give diplomatic cover. Yeah. The red line is a regional conflict that the US gets dragged into that they feel they will not be able to get out of. And that's why I think that for the Americans, they believe Netanyahu's attempts to provoke Hezbollah are a red line, and they've actually warned Netanyahu not to provoke Hezbollah into a conflict. And they've even sent messages to the Iranians to say, look, we really don't want this to escalate. And the Iranians, I think, have said to them, thank you, we appreciate that. So tell me about Biden's red lines. I mean, you know, we've heard a lot from the very beginning of this crisis that Biden has attempted to rein in the Israelis, but that never seems to materialize. Uh, many have surmised that probably uh, I was speaking to Azam Tamimi uh, in, in a show uh, a couple of weeks back. And his argument was, you know, that's just for public theatrics. In reality, uh, the Biden administration has really just given the green light to the Netanyahu regime. How do you interpret uh, the U.S. stance on Israel and on Netanyahu? Are they trying to limit? OK, you've talked about the escalation beyond uh, beyond uh, Palestine or beyond what they call Israel. But in the theater of Gaza and Israel, are they trying to limit the ferocity of uh, of Israel? I think it's less that they're trying to limit the ferocity of Israel and more that they're reacting to threats to their own interests that are being brought about by Netanyahu's brazen attempt at genocide and ethnic cleansing. Mm. Consider the timeline of events. In the beginning, in the first week, Blinken's account had a tweet where after speaking with his Turkish counterpart, Hakan Fidan, a tweet was out on Blinken's account where it said that we spoke to, I spoke to my Turkish counterpart, Hakan Fidan, and we discussed what's happening in Gaza and the prospects of a ceasefire. Mm. Within half an hour, that tweet was deleted. I think that somebody in the staff wrote the tweet as the call happened and Blinken saw and said, we don't use the word ceasefire. We don't use the word pause. Mm. Israel has license to go straight ahead. Blinken mm. then went to Israel and went to Tel Aviv and he said, I'm here as a Jew uh, before I'm here as a secretary of state, as if somehow, you know, the Holocaust happened in Saudi Arabia and the Spanish Inquisition happened in Tunisia or in, in, in these other countries. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that one of the things that uh, is noteworthy is that Blinken went from banning the word ceasefire to aggressively pushing for a humanitarian pause even when Netanyahu was angry about it. Axios reported in the humanitarian pause, Axios reports that it wasn't Netanyahu's idea. It was Blinken went to Tel Aviv and said, there's a serious problem that's taking place here. Public opinion is shifting. These guys are shouting too loud on social media. People who were pro-Israel yesterday are becoming pro-Palestinian. You're too brazen, you're genocide and ethnic cleansing. We need a new marketing strategy for our genocide and our ethnic cleansing. The point that I'm making here is look at the shift that took place on the part of the Americans. They went from banning the word ceasefire and pause mm. to going to Netanyahu and saying, listen, give them four hours to leave their homes and let them go through a humanitarian corridor under the protection of the Israeli army. It's a good marketing strategy. And CNN and New York Times, they will lap it up. Axios reports that Netanyahu's reaction, he was so concerned 
at this change in tone of the Americans that he said, according to Axios, this is my words, mm. he said to Blinken, I need to know first and foremost, this isn't a plot by Biden to lure me into a ceasefire the way he did to me in 2021. Why did this shift happen? It's because a threat was, or pressure was brought to bear on the Americans. They made a calculation. They could not continue on their current trajectory. They weren't reining in Netanyahu. They were trying to do everything not to rein him in. Yeah. But to do that, they came up with this idea of the humanitarian pause. Of course, then social media went wild with the pictures of the humanitarian corridor and the pictures of the 1948 Nakba. It just made things worse. They were still accused of genocide and ethnic cleansing. Then Blinken got on a plane again, went to Tel Aviv and said, guys, I think now we need a genuine pause and a hostage truce. Why did the Americans go from no ceasefire, no pause to humanitarian pause to hostage truce? It wasn't because they wanted to rein in the Israelis. It was because they felt the pressure had become so heavy from public opinion that now in the swing states in Georgia, Pennsylvania, and these other places where somehow they happen to be the provinces or the states where Muslims have the potentially the deciding vote, mm. Blinken identified that there is too much pressure being brought to bear and the prospect of genocide is being compromised by Netanyahu's brazen attempt at genocide and ethnic cleansing. So Blinken, not to reign in Israel, Blinken wanted to rescue the genocide and ethnic cleansing. So he went to Netanyahu and said, we need a hostage truce. And Netanyahu hesitated, hesitated, and then found no choice but to implement it when those in Tel Aviv began to protest as well, demanding his resignation because they felt that he was killing hostages as well and showing no regard for them as well. The question that I'm answering your question with a question, mm. what made Blinken go from no ceasefire, no pause to humanitarian pause to hostage truce that made Ben Gvir, the right wing ally of Netanyahu, do a unilateral press conference, I'm saying he did it without telling Netanyahu, saying to the Israelis, if Netanyahu extends the ceasefire by one more day, I will bring his government crashing. What is the threat that Ben Gvir identified in the American change in position that was not supposed to be designed to rein in the Israelis, it was the Americans considering and saying, we're suddenly suffering these threats. We're under pressure here from public opinion, from social media. We went to Saudi Arabia. We got a fatwa from Abdurrahman al-Sudais saying that Gaza is fitna, don't talk about it. Muslims are still talking about it. We went to UAE. We asked for a statement denouncing the Palestinians. They denounced the Palestinians. That still hasn't made a difference. We went to Sisi. We're begging him to open the border so that he can take in the Palestinians, he's refusing to do so. King Abdullah, we keep offering him money and the like, but he keeps saying that displacement is a declaration of war. Erdogan, who was supposed to be neutral, is becoming more hard in his rhetoric, albeit thankfully he's not doing anything beyond that. But we're seeing that, the, and we're seeing the fall in public opinion, where former Zionists are now coming out in favor of the Palestinians. And it's not that they want to rein in Israel, it's that they want the genocide and ethnic cleansing, but they are finding that it's harder to keep doing it because a pressure is growing in the global public public opinion, that means they have to go to the Israelis. In the beginning, they tried to remarket it. Then they tried to repackage it. Then they tried to get a way to get the media to reframe it. You'll remember, for example, when the IDF bombed the Jabalia refugee camp, killing 400 people, the IDF said, we did it. Mm. New York Times took it upon itself to say, this is a bit too incriminating for the Israelis. Let's say an explosion happened. Mm -hmm. And CNN said, 
CNN, I remember for those who are interested to go to see it, just search Jabalia CNN. When the IDF commander admits it, the CNN presenter who's renowned for being Zionist is so stunned, he forgets to ask the next question for the next 10 seconds. Mm. He's stunned that it's being admitted live on air. So CNN take it upon themselves to say that a blast happened in the Jabalia refugee camp. They don't want to say that Israel did it. The point here is the this is a good symbolism of how the Americans felt about the situation. Yeah. That Israel was too brazen and they are making our desire for genocide and ethnic cleansing much harder and therefore they went from repackaging remarketing reframing to now trying to rein in the israelis because they believe that it's going overboard and they might suffer those circumstances the only obstacle now is biden who remains ardently committed to the israelis with like even though his advisors and the staff are now telling him that it's a serious situation what's happening but the point is going back to your question it's not that the americans are reigning in the israelis it's that the americans were on board with ethnic cleansing and genocide but netanyahu's the manner in which he's done it has, has been in such a way that the Americans are uncomfortable at the consequences that has brought about, particularly with regards to public opinion. The Democrats are particularly concerned about it. And that's what's resulted in a shift in the US position in which I still think they're at a stage where they're trying to rescue the genocide operation. They're trying to rescue Netanyahu's bid to do the genocide. Mm. But I think whereas before it was a carte blanche, it was an open ticket, I think now Blinken is trying to squeeze the last few days for net as many days as Netanyahu as he can for Netanyahu to say, listen, you don't have months anymore. You have a few weeks. Is a few weeks enough for you to finish the ethnic cleansing? Netanyahu, you need to finish it. This is all I can give you. I've done my duty to give you as much as possible. And Netanyahu appears to be failing because the Palestinians don't appear to be going anywhere. Can I be uh, frank with you, Sami, about the power of public opinion, or at least the Muslim vote, because you you insinuated there that uh, there is a pressure that's bearing down on uh, on Biden. We're in an election year, and um, Biden is very worried about his poll ratings, especially in those swing states. And you quite rightly identify that his poll ratings in those swing states are decisively moving away from the Democrats. There is a uh, a, a feeling amongst young Democrats, in particular, that. You know the the United States uh, is on the wrong side of history when it comes to uh, when it comes to the conflict. So all of that is very true, but when it comes to the ballot box, it's that old Clinton adage. You know, you care about the economy. That's really what counts, and the U.S. economy is doing pretty well in relation to uh, the uh, the rest of the G8 uh, economies. And uh, the United States is is probably uh, doing much well. It's certainly doing much better than most of the European economies, as, as I've suggested. Um, and secondly, is the Muslim vote really that decisive? I know you've got you've been to the United States. I'm not sure why you you visit the US so often, Sammy. <laughs> I mean, it's, we've got lovely weather here in the UK, uh, but you've you've been to the United States. Is the Muslim vote really that cohesive and resilient? that it's really going to be able to make an impact on Biden uh, come uh, the end of the year. Let's first talk about the issue of public opinion and whether the economy is going to make the difference or not. Mm. We talked about it in, in, in the last podcast, but there's no, there's no harm in doing a small reminder and then adding something to Please. it. When Blinken went to Tel Aviv, he was supposed to go to Tel Aviv and come straight back to Washington in the first week. When... The journalists were expecting to fly back to Washington. Blinken surprised them and told them, I need to go see Mohammed bin Salman. I need to go see the other regional powers. Mm. The journalists were asking why. 
Washington Post reported the next day that Blinken had gone to, quote, tamp down on public anger. That means that Blinken and Netanyahu sat in a war room and they identified a threat to their attempt to commit genocide and ethnic cleansing. They identified a threat that would restrict or limit their ability to commit genocide and ethnic cleansing in the manner that they wanted to happen. And that threat was public opinion. They went to the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and they said to him, Your Highness, we need help and assistance with regards to public anger. And the Saudi Crown Prince said, no problem. Abdurrahman al-Sudais, I need a fatwa. And Abdurrahman al-Sudais said, Gaza is a fitna. Don't talk about issues that you don't know. Make dua and that's it. The Imam in Medina gave a khutbah, said, Beware the mutarabbisin. Beware those who are using Gaza to turn you against your rulers. <laughs> those of you going to Umrah, well, those, I don't know if you're going to be going to Umrah anytime soon, but in any case, <laughs> <laughs> those of listening who are going to Umrah. So my wife, she went to give a talk in the World Halal Summit in Istanbul about the state of halal tourism. <laughs> A former government advisor in Malaysia was with her and he said, tell Sami that I'm going to do Umrah in December. And uh, we're past December. He would have been back by now, so he won't get in trouble. So, so <laughs> I'm going in December and I was told by my tour group not to bring a kafir, not to uh, bring a free Gaza or free Palestine sticker and not to record myself making dua for Gaza. I told my wife, Sumaya, I can't go on a rumor. Every time I do a video on Saudi Arabia, it starts with backlash, then acceptance. They always get a few mashayikh who say, no, it's exaggeration. Then later they realize, okay, yeah, maybe it actually turned out to be true. Mm. I was in LA, wonderful, love Muhammad, let me tell you, <laughs> on a side note. So I flew to, I was invited to speak at the Mass LA conference yes. or convention. Yes. And uh, alhamdulillah, they, they all watch Thinking Muslim podcast. They all send their salam as well. So, you know, we all know what the weather is like outside of the studio at this moment in time. Yes. It's freezing, it's chilly, yeah. your fingers get cold very quickly. Yeah. It's miserable. Alhamdulillah. When I landed in LA, Muhammad, the pilot says, Welcome to Los Angeles Airport. And the weather is something, something Fahrenheit. I don't know what Fahrenheit is. Yes. And I said, Whatever. And I'm dressed for London weather. I step outside, Muhammad. Blue skies, sunshine, 27 degrees Celsius. I said to myself privately, I said, I will never spend winter anywhere else. Like, it was wonderful. Anyway. Basami, okay, California <laughs> and Wembley. In any case. Come on, way, way up. In, a, in any case, in any case, while I was in LA for this convention, I was yes. sitting for dinner yes. with a group of people. We were discussing what's happened. And I said, guys, I've heard a rumor that going to Umrah, there is, you know, these rules in place. No kafir, no free Gaza stickers, no records make it. And one person said, Sammy, no, it's not a rumor. Here's the WhatsApp. And in the WhatsApp on his phone, it says he was going to December. Now he's come back and nobody will know who he is because I won't make any more references to him. Yeah. But the WhatsApp says it is with a heavy heart that we inform you that we've been informed by Saudi authorities that you may not bring kafirs, you may not bring free Palestine stickers and you may not record yourself making dua for Gaza and we urge you to respect these rules. Yeah. The point I'm making here is when Blinken went to bin Salman, bin Salman said, I will give you a fatwa. So to make sure the Muslims stop tweeting and, and talking about it on social media. Mm -hmm. I will tell them it's fitna. I will have my scholars say it. And I will ban those coming for Amara. I will ban them from showing displays of support for the Palestinians. Mm -hmm. And on the night that Israel wants to do his ground invasion, this part, he didn't actually say it, but I'm saying that on the night that Israel began its ground invasion, on the night they cut off the internet on Gaza, that was the night Shakira performed her concert in Riyadh. Mm. And Turki Al Sheikh says, I'm not canceling it for a political event. Who canceled a political event? The irony is that they wouldn't cancel any concerts for Gaza, but they canceled it for the death of the Emir of Kuwait. Allah ya mm. They canceled it for the death of the Emir of Kuwait because they realized that would cause a diplomatic crisis. But it shows you that Blinken goes to Saudi Arabia 
to ask for what? The point I'm making here is this. Who is Bin Salman targeting in his support for Blinken? He was targeting the ordinary individual. Right. He wasn't targeting big organizations. The question here is why are heads of state and the Secretary of State of the United States mobilizing all of this effort in order to get public opinion to be quiet? And I think the reason is that while your question suggests that public opinion is not as powerful as it seems, they believed it to be powerful enough to hinder the attempt at genocide and ethnic cleansing and potentially result in a chain of events that will see the inability to complete the genocide and ethnic cleansing that they desire. And the point that I will push back on it on, on the question as well is this. We have, and this is the reason why I always tell people, read Sirah as a political book. Because people brush over the, brush over the first 13 years of Dawah. Mm. The reason they brush over it is because Muslims don't like to read about a period where the Muslims were persecuted because they somehow come to the conclusion that those first 13 years were a period of weakness, when in reality it was a period of spectacular strength. And I'll explain what I mean. Think about it. The Zion Quraysh had... All of the weapons, they had all of the all of the armies, they had all of the money and the like. Mm. And they kept persecuting the Muslims and wielding it against them. But why did they continue to persecute the Muslims? You don't persecute something that's not a threat. You don't repress something that's not a threat. What is it that Quraysh, with all of their money, all of their weapons, what is it that they feared amongst a group of Muslims who had no weapons, amongst a group of Muslims who didn't have the money? What is it they feared that meant they had to repress them in this way? And that's the point I want to make here In that when you watch the film The Message by Mustafa Aqad On the life of the Prophet Muhammad There's a scene in it Where Abu Talib is lying on his deathbed The uncle of the Prophet Muhammad And he says to Abu Sufyan And the leaders of the Quraysh He says all he wants from you Is one word and Abu Sufyan responds and he says, if it was a matter of one word, we would have given him a hundred words. The problem is the word he wants. Hmm. It's the word that made Umar ibn Khattab عنه, leave the elite of Quraysh to join the persecuted Muslims. Umar ibn Khattab left an army to go join a people with no army. Musab ibn Umayr would walk down the street, you would smell his perfume across the whole street. He left the life of the elite, he left the power of Quraysh to join the persecuted. They still didn't have power, they had no haven, they didn't have Medina at the time. He still left the elite, he left the luxury to join them. The Muslims were growing day by day because an idea is more powerful than the tanks and the weapons. Public opinion was so terrifying as a potential power that not even the weapons that they had or the armies made them feel safe. Not only that, you were to, you were to, you, your question, not you because I know what you believe, your question was trying to belittle public opinion. When the Muslims went to Habasha, to Abyssinia, to flee the Quraysh, Quraysh sent Amr ibn As to Habasha to bring them back because they felt that despite their power, their money and their armies, the shift in public opinion that they would cause in Abyssinia would result in a chain of events that would undermine Quraysh entirely despite their armies. and their... That's why Amr ibn As, when he goes after a ragtag group of refugees, they weren't ragtag, I'm saying it from Quraysh's perspective, they were honorable people. Mm -hmm. But when Amr ibn As goes, even Najashis, I don't understand, you're coming all this way for a group of like, what is it that they've done in Mecca that is so great that it's worried you guys in this way? Mm -hmm. And that's the point I want to make is when people talk about public opinion and they belittle it, they are the same people who belittle the first 13 years of the da'wah because they don't see strength in it. Instead, all they see is the death of Khadija. 
during the boycott. They see the Muslims being persecuted. They don't see also the reason why they were being persecuted, mm -hmm. which is that the Muslims were displaying such strength that Quraysh could not quell it with their armies. Or they even when they killed Sumayyah when they put the rock on Bilal when they persecuted the Sahaba, they would not give up La ilaha illallah Muhammadur Rasulullah. When Abu Sufyan sent somebody to reconnoitre to do reconnaissance on the Sahaba, when he comes back, he says to Abu Sufyan, Wallahi, these people will never give up the Prophet Muhammad for anything. That's what terrified Quraysh. It's that public opinion. Now take this context of the seerah, which everybody reads, but sometimes comes to the opposite conclusion. If those first 13 years where Allah doesn't give power to the Prophet against Quraysh, not only that, after those first 13 years, remember when the Prophet is told to leave, to go to Medina, I always used to assume that haq is something you always do when you're happy. But look what the Prophet says when he leaves Mecca to show you how it hurt him. He leaves Mecca and he looks back. Allah has told him to go to Medina. He still turns around the Prophet and looks at Mecca and he says, Wallahi, you're the dearest land to me. And if your people had not driven me from you, I would never have left you. He says it with a heavy heart, even though he's obeying the command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The point that I want to make though is this, when people talk about public opinion, what was so terrifying about the Muslims in Mecca that made Quraysh persecute them for 13 years? And you'll find it's not because the Muslims were weak. It's because they were displaying a terrifying strength that Quraysh knew if they left unchecked would result in their demise and would result in the success of the Muslims. So when we look at public opinion, it may not be in the way of the armies and the tanks, but Quraysh had armies and they couldn't beat the Muslims. Public opinion matters because when you read the Reuters article about the polls in the US, usually when presidents fall in the polls over foreign policy issues, it's usually because their boys are dying abroad. Mm -hmm. Why were presidents unpopular of Iraq and Afghanistan? Let's be honest here. It wasn't only because it was an unjust or an illegal war. It was overwhelmingly because Americans could not understand why their boys are dying in places they couldn't even point to on a map. Yeah. That's why they were upset about it. The reason the Reuters article, this is Reuters, not Sammy. Reuters said the reason the polls in the US are so extraordinary is because it's the first time a president is falling in the polls over a foreign policy issue where American troops aren't even on the ground. Think about it. The, the opinions on Palestine are not changing because their boys are dying in Palestine. They're changing because the social media impact that has broken Israel's monopoly over the narrative has resulted in a seismic shift where a girl records a TikTok in LA where she says, I grew up in a pro-Zionist environment and TikTok, may Allah preserve it for this ummah. <laughs> People always laugh and say, you should enjoy. I'm being serious here. Where a girl puts on TikTok and she says, I grew up in a pro-Zionist environment, never hearing the Palestinian voices. TikTok brought that Palestinian voice. She says, I can't unsee what I've seen. And now all my videos are dedicated to stopping the genocide in Palestine. That public opinion terrified Blinken into going to Bin Salman and asking for a fatwa from Abdurrahman al-Sudais. Terrified Netanyahu into bullying social media companies to tell them to shadow ban accounts and restrict hashtag Palestine. Terrified Oliver Vahali of the EU who went to try to present a bill to the European Parliament to punish social media accounts that wouldn't shadow ban or limit the reach of Palestinian accounts. That made Ian Bremmer, the US political analyst, come out and say, I've never seen so much disinformation, meaning I've never seen so much pro-Palestinian content. Yes. 
The question I always ask for Muslims who question public opinion, why do they fear it and you belittle it? Why do you see it as powerless and they believe billions need to spend in order to keep it? Why does an article come out in The Hill by a Zionist writer who writes and says that though Netanyahu may win the battle, he's done even more damage to Israel even if he kills more Palestinians because the damage he's done to public impression of Israel is such that in future he writes, I fear our allies will no longer rush to our rescue in the way they did before. Why does a Zionist say in an interview that what Netanyahu has done is he transformed the image of Israel from a refuge of Jews from the Holocaust to a genocidal maniac that kills people? Why do they believe it's a turning point and a great awakening? But my Muslim brother and sister looks me in the eye and says, what's the point of public opinion? Why does it matter? When even in the seerah itself, we know Allah demonstrated that public opinion matters so much so that when Abu Sufyan goes to Heraclius and stands in front of the emperor, when the emperor Heraclius asks about Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, public opinion is so overwhelmingly in favor of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam that Abu Sufyan can't even lie in front of his clansmen. Who are the two who are witness against him? They're not Muslim. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. The Quraysh of his clansmen, the image of the Muslims is so positive in public opinion because of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam that Abu Sufyan cannot even lie in front of his clansmen Muhammad. He has to look at the Heraclius in the eye and say he is Amin, he is trustworthy, he calls for the rights of the poor. And Heraclius says, who are the people who follow him? This is the point I want to make about public opinion. Who are the people who follow the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu and he says it's the weak of our society the people that we subconsciously look down on Heraclius says this is the way of the prophets that it's those the power where you don't it's the places where you don't think power is that deliver the changes and that's why I want to make this point Jalal and why I focused on public opinion Bin Salman is not the one who made blink and move from no ceasefire to humanitarian pause to hostage truce to sustainable ceasefire to now people talking about potential ceasefire on the horizon it wasn't 
Erdogan who was praying and saying, Ya Allah, please make this situation go away. I need a gas pipeline with the Israelis and I need to convince them not to do Middle East corridor through Saudi. I want them to do Middle East corridor through me. It wasn't Bin Zayed who said, I'm not interested in this. I've got a rampaging militia in Sudan that I'm supporting because I don't want Sudanese to choose their leaders because if they choose, they will quote, in his opinion, vote for a 1400-year-old book to be the constitution. And I believe that's ridiculous and we shouldn't have anything whatsoever. This is in the New York Times article. It's not my words. Yeah. The point here being is it wasn't big nation states. It wasn't even billion dollar industries. It's Israel that spent the billions on PR. But Jalal the Ummah broke it for free. It's the ordinary Muslims on social media who broke that and delivered the message of Palestine so emphatically that Biden is falling in the polls on an issue where American troops are not on the ground. Think about it. The Reuters poll said Biden is falling not just over the economy. He's falling because of his stance on Palestine and Gaza itself. And that leads me to your second strand of your question about the Muslim vote. Yeah, the abandoned Biden uh, campaign. Do you think it has enough legs to, to truly achieve the ends that we all want to achieve, where Muslims en masse in the United States, they work against maybe their immediate interests and they work to undermine Biden's uh, potential political vote. Let's analyze it and then I'll give you my theory. Please. As far as numbers are concerned, Axios reported, the Israeli paper, that if, quote, Biden loses a sliver of the Muslim vote in Michigan, Pennsylvania, or in Georgia, Biden loses. Mm. Politico writes that if the Muslim abandoned Biden campaign unites the Muslims in punishing Biden, Biden loses the election. For them, it's not a maybe. For them, he loses the election. Right. The only ones who don't believe it are the Muslims. Mm. The only ones who don't believe in the power of the Muslim vote are a large strand of the Muslims. The reason why I say this is because it's an accurate reflection of the state of the Ummah. Mm. In that the Ummah's never actually been weak. The Ummah's always had power. Ibn Khaldun used to say that the Ummah is always one generation away from glory. Mm. Because Ibn Khaldun argued that Allah has already equipped the Ummah with the power it needs to be glorious. It's whether the Muslims choose to deploy that power or not, and whether they believe in that power. Once the Muslims do that, it unlocks an irresistible wave that results in glory for the Umm. When you look at the states as it stands right now in the US, it's abundantly clear that Biden is now trailing behind Trump. If elections are held tomorrow, Trump wins. I think, Sheikh Yasser Qadi always said, don't speak definitively about the will of Allah, use the word as if. So mm -hmm. I will use it there. Mm -hmm. I'm doing a shout out to Sheikh Yasser Qadi. <laughs> it is as if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, out of all of the states that he could have chosen, to be the swing states to decide the election, it is as if Allah chose the states where the Muslims have the deciding vote. It is an unprecedented opportunity where 1% of the population have almost the power of 51% population. We essentially, Muslims in America, essentially have the same power as the Zionists at this moment in time. Mm. And I'll explain what I mean. What makes the Zionist lobby so powerful in America? It's not that they deliver candidates. If it was the case that they deliver candidates and that was their sole power, then the candidates would do what Bush did to the Muslims in 2000 where the Muslims deliver him to power, but then he betrays them when he gets to power <coughs> because he doesn't need to listen to them because well, he's already delivered them to power. What's the point now? Mm. The power of the Zionist lobby is in its ability to punish candidates. It's in its ability to say, if you veer left or right, we don't care what you do, we will punish you and ruin your career. Muslims today have the ability for the first time to demonstrate a power similar to the Zionists and the Black Caucuses, in which to finally punish a candidate for supporting genocide or the like. The Muslim vote, as far as numbers are concerned, are a significant block. 
the reason why Biden, it hasn't had the impact on Biden that they want is because Biden is convinced there is no such thing as a Muslim vote. And mm. I explain what I mean. Yeah. Biden believes that although the mathematics show that Muslims can punish Biden, Muslims are so badly divided that there is absolutely no way they will organize like the Zionist bloc. There is no way they will organize like the Black Caucasus bloc. That even if Sheikh Omar Suleiman and Sheikh Yasser Qadi and all these mashaykh come out and they say, guys, we cannot reward genocide, you will still have a last strand of Muslims who will tell you, but what about Trump? Mm. But what about you know the, the discomfort we might feel for the next four years? Mm. What about these things? Biden believes that there's no precedent of Muslim organization on a level in which it can actually pose a threat. Instead, there have always been a small group of Muslims who've engaged with the system, who have always been derided by the Muslim community. So the Muslim community steps back, these small groups, so they've never been a unified bloc. And that's why Biden believes that when November comes, the Muslims might be angry with the genocide, but come November, they will not be able to mobilize in a way to punish him, and therefore their fears are exaggerated. And that's why for Biden, the more important vote is the organized Zionist vote to make sure they don't feel like Biden abandoned the Zionists, make sure Biden, they, they, he doesn't want them to feel like Biden abandoned the Israelis. He believes the Muslims will eventually come back anyway. They'll be angry today, tomorrow, but when they sit in their lovely big homes or the like, and they have, they have big homes, Muhammad Jalal, mashallah. I can't lie, my flat is decent, but I can't lie to you. When I, when I entered, I felt claustrophobic after coming back from Texas and these places, like mashallah, they have. Mashallah. Biden says that as a result of the, the comfort that many of these Muslims event, they will not compromise it, for the sake of an event that takes place thousands of miles away. Yeah. And that's why I think that to answer your question directly, Muslims <laughs> mathematically and politically have the power, in my opinion, to punish Biden and set a precedent for the first time in American political history that just as when you upset the Zionists, they can punish you, just as you have, when you upset the Black Caucus, they can punish you, they have an opportunity to set a precedent that when you punish the Muslim vote, when you punish, when you, when you do genocide, the Muslims also have the ability to punish mm -hmm. you as well. Mm -hmm. Whether the Muslims will take it is a different issue altogether. And I think that one of the things that is worth noting here is that I understand the concerns of the American Muslim. Mm. American Muslim says that if Trump was in power, he would do worse. That's true, probably true. Although sometimes when I see the way Biden is digging his heels in, I, I don't know how true it is anymore. Mm. That's probably true. But the point of punishing Biden is not to reward Trump. The point of punishing Biden is to let every American politician know that there are red lines with the Muslim community. That okay, we'll tolerate this issue. We'll tolerate this issue because scared the Republicans. But surely genocide is a red line. What I fear is if Biden wins the second term, the historians will write that not even a genocide of 20,000 Palestinians on the other side of the world could convince Muslims to punish genocide, Joe. Mm -hmm. What I fear is if Biden wins the second term, then you know right now you have the Congress people, they go to the mosque and say, Assalamualaikum, and they come and they say Mubarak Eid, or in, in the wrong way, they're trying, so the, the assistant tried to tell them how to do it. Mm -hmm. What I fear is they won't even come for Eid. Because they'll say, look guys, we committed a genocide against 20,000 of their brethren on the side of the world. Yeah. And still, they were so scared of Trump. They were so scared of four years of discomfort. Because let's be honest here, and I know many American Muslims might be upset with me, but let's be honest. Trump is not going to be sending people to knock on the houses of Muslim doors and say, you know what, I'm giving it over to this family. Now you have to go live in a refugee camp. 
Trump is not going to mobilize the American army to go and commit a genocide of 20,000 American Muslims. Trump will not do anything remotely like what the Israelis are doing. And that's why I liked Hind Mekki's tweet, a Sudan, American Sudanese activist, where she's put a tweet out and she said, because the Democrats, to put context to Hind Mekki's tweet, the Democrats are concerned, even though they believe the Muslims are divided, they are concerned that rabble-rousers, like us, will tell the Americans that unite and, 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 and do something and punish genocide, Joe. Yeah. I haven't said that. I'm just analyzing the situation to make sure mm. I can get through the border. I'm flying to Washington tomorrow. Yeah. But in any case, <laughs> <laughs> don't publish this before I get to America. In any case, so Kamala Harris released a video where she said, we're launching the first anti-Islamophobia initiative in the history of the US. She didn't do it because she was moved by the pictures of what's happening in Gaza. Yeah. She did it because the Democrats sat at a table and they came and they said, these Muslims, though they, it's likely they'll come back to us in November, there's a chance they won't. There's a chance they'll punish genocide, Joe. Let's throw them a bone to make them feel like we care about them while we're massacring and committing genocide on the other side of the world. Yeah. Then they sent out an email to Democrats saying, we're against the Muslim ban. I liked him making street. She responded to this. She said, we survived four years of Trump. Trump is not something new. Like, we saw Trump, it was bad, but we survived it. Mm. We sort of know what we're getting with Trump. 15,000 Palestinians did not survive four years of Biden. You're asking me to vote for genocide Joe who committed genocide on the basis the other guy might commit a genocide. Mm. And in the words of Imam Tom, like lovely, lovely. I met him for the first time a few weeks back as well. Lovely brother. More, I was about to say more impressive in real life. He's impressive on camera and he's very impressive in real life as well. Imam Tom also put a point where he was asked, he said, okay, so if Trump comes and he's worse, he said, I'd rather take the possibility than the definite. Mm. I know now that Biden is a genocider. There's a possibility Trump be a genocider. I'll take the possibility over the definitive. Yeah. And that's the point I want to make is that Muslims now have a golden opportunity to elevate their status in American politics by being a society capable, not only of delivering candidates in the way they delivered Bush in 2000. I know some are scarred by what Bush did, but the reason Bush turned his back on the Muslims was because he knew Muslims couldn't punish candidates. This is the first time in the history of America where the Muslim vote has the chance to punish a candidate. I feel Allah gave this opportunity. Whether they will take it is a different matter altogether. I understand there are different ramifications. It's easy for two people sitting in London to say it when we don't mm. live in the US. If the Muslim ban comes in, maybe we won't be allowed in or the like, and we'll be here in London. And London's pretty nice despite its miserable weather or the like. They are the ones who perhaps will end up suffering, yeah. not in the way the Palestinians are suffering or the like. But certainly, in, to answer your question directly, the Muslim vote is quite possibly, I say it is, but we'll do quite possibly in case someone cuts it later and says, Sammy got it wrong again. And I'm, yeah. and I'm prone to get it wrong as well. Sure. Only, a command belongs only to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Perfection only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's political we analysis. We only yeah. analyze the dynamics. Yeah. I believe that the Muslim vote will be the decisive vote in November. Inshallah. And I believe also that the Democrats are gambling now that the Muslims will remain divided, that the Muslims will not be organized, yeah. that the Muslims will turn to each other and they will say, okay, he committed a genocide, but guys, Trump might do to us something worse or Trump might do horrible things to us instead. And the Democrats are gambling that the comfort of the American life will be enough to deter Muslims from compromising that for the sake of punishing Biden for the genocide that he's done. And that's the issue for the Americans. So can I turn, Ben, as we're on the subject of elections to the UK? I mean, it's very likely that the UK elections will take place at the same time as the American elections. And uh, Muslims here, of course, have got, uh, uh, they, similar to the US, probably even worse than the US, we uh, tend to be very disorganized when it comes to the political system. In fact, uh, when in, on the 15th of November, when there was the ceasefire vote 
in Parliament, the party whips of the Labour Party went around saying to their MPs that were teetering between voting yes and no, that just discount the Muslim vote because it's never going to impact uh, the, the final election. Um, you know, as well as I do, uh, Sami, that we are extremely disorganised. We're extremely messy when it comes to these things. I mean, I was at a meeting in one particular city in, in the UK. Uh, they invited me to talk about the elections. There were 25 people around the table. And by the end of it, there were 50 solutions to the problem of, of elections. So we, are, we, we don't have even probably the capacity of the Muslims in the United States to organise um, of course, the U.S. is far more consequential than the United Kingdom. Um, but from your perspective, is there an opportunity for us here in the U.K., in particular, to bleed the vote of the Labour Party? As you know, Muslims here in the U.K. are largely in Labour constituencies, and the Labour Party has been, tr you know, horrendous when it comes to when it comes to Palestine. And you know, Keir Starmer has in effect given a stronger green light than even the Conservative Party in the UK uh, towards uh, towards Israel's actions in, in Gaza. So I suppose the same question applies to us here in the UK. Do you think we'll be able to put it together? I think that one of the things that hampers Muslim mobilization generally in the US and in the UK is an enduring debate over the legitimacy of engaging with the system and the right. benefits of engaging with the system. Yeah. The reason why I resent the debate is because the masajid that are built where we gather, that were built by our elders, were built through engagement with the local councils and engagement with the local municipalities. So they are having this debate in the very building that was built on the basis of engagement in the first place. And I think that that debate badly hampered our ability to leverage the power that the Muslim communities have. Mm. I believe that what Gaza has done is that Gaza has demonstrated that we are lacking as an ummah in many different industries, not by design of those who don't like the ummah, but by designs of unusual conclusions that the ummah has come about by itself. Yeah. I'll give an example. Yeah. An anecdote from the US. Please. I, give a, I finished a talk in Berkeley, in, in Berkeley, Berkeley, in the university. Whatever, yeah. Yeah. So when I went to the US, I wanted to buy Timberlands because they're cheaper in the US than they are in the UK. They're much cheaper in the US than they are in the UK. Really? So I said to my wife, I said, she said to me, you know, go buy Timberlands. And then she did a research and she found that they support the Zionists. Mm. So, you know, the example I gave earlier, the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam looking at Mecca and saying, if I had not left you, if your people had driven me, I would not have left you. For me, I interpret that is that sometimes, you know, when you give something up for the sake of Allah, it's okay to feel sometimes that, uh, you know, Allah, I'm doing it for you, but this is a bit. Now, I'm not comparing Timberlands to leaving Mecca, sure. but I'm, the principle is what I'm mentioning. Hmm. It hurt me that I couldn't buy Timberlands in the US because yeah. they're really good shoes. Anyway, so we were sitting for dinner afterwards with some students and a student made a very good point. He said to me, Sammy, don't you think, you know, we're all boycotting and we're all making a difference. McDonald's has said, you know, its sales have fallen and Starbucks, the share prices. McDonald's said it's because of the boycott yeah. of Gaza and Palestine. Zara had a couple of stores closed down as well. Yeah. And, and the boycott is having an impact. But he made a good point. He said, but... Are you finding it as difficult as I am to find Muslim alternatives? Are you finding it as hard as I am? Okay, we're boycotting and we're doing it for the sake of Allah and Gaza and we're, we're happy to do so. Mm. But I speak for myself, Jalal. Mm. Finding alternatives is not as easy as, as, as it seems. Even Marks and Spencer shirts. You know, I'm wearing this today only because all my shirts are Marks and Spencer. Really? And, and, and I thought, where am I going to get 
you know, other shirts from, I got a few from Turkey, which are quite good, you know, decent quality. But yeah. the point is, you really have to go out of your way to try to find a lot of these Muslim businesses. And I have a theory why. The Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu said that Allah loves the hand that earns its risk. And that hand is better than the hand that takes charity. I feel that the Ummah added to the Hadith. They read the Hadith, they said, Bismillah, MashaAllah, this is a wonderful Hadith. But we want to add to it. Allah loves the hand that earns its risk through engineering, law, and medicine. <laughs> and when you start thinking about it, we started expanding on this theory. And I realized yeah. that, let's think of, and this is no disrespect to the elders. Yes. I have huge respect because they're the ones who paved the way and gave us the platform to take on you. They fought the battles yes. that we don't need to fight today. Yes. But I think a lot of it had to do with something that the Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala looks down on. Hmm. Pride. It's nice to say to your friends, my son is a lawyer. Yes. Or my son is a doctor. Or my son is an engineer. Yeah. And then you go to one person, what does your son do? He makes shoes. <laughs> what does your son do? He makes shoelaces. What does your son He yes. makes shirts for people. Yes. And what I realized is designers don't have that complex. In every industry that you look, they have a mega company in each industry, whether it's tech, whether it's clothing, whether it's all these, they have it. They're not hampered by these prejudices. They went out. So when you talk about the Zionist lobby being strong, despite not having the numbers, it's because for them, they don't put limits on themselves. Mm. Not only that, let's flip another angle as well. Zionists have a tolerance for failure. Remember, their movement started in the late 1800s. They have a tolerance for failure. They considered Uganda once upon a time. They considered Argentina. They put up with the Warsaw Pogrom. They, they went through the Holocaust. They have, a, they have a tolerance for it. I feel like sometimes Muslims, we don't have a tolerance for it. Somebody comes and says, up a business. He fails first time, second time, third time. If he fails the first time, we tell him, khalas. Sometimes, I say it semi-jokingly, although I mean it quite seriously. The Prophet Muhammad sent Khalid ibn Walid to a tribe. And Khalid ibn Walid, who transgressed. And the news came to the Prophet Muhammad And the Prophet lifted his hands in the air and he said, Allahumma inni abra'u ilayka mimma fa'ala Khalid. Allahumma, I'm innocent of what Khalid has done. Quite the condemnation. Sometimes I believe that the Ummah of today, would, after that statement, would never have sent Khalid back into the battlefield. They would never allow Khalid ibn Walid to lead an army again. They would have said, because you did this, you're not entitled to it. But what did the Prophet do? He sent him back out. After Uhud, when the archers come down because they're excited by the spoils of war. This isn't me, this is Ibn Hisham, this is all the seerah. They say the reason they left the hill was because they thought they had won and they, did, they wanted to be first to the spoils of war. The dunya got to them. When they are to be punished, usually military punishment is court-martial. Hmm. Allah tells them, Oh Muhammad, if you are harsh on them, they will flee from you. So pardon them, forgive them. And it's the last part that throws me like, like curveball. Yeah. Pardon them, forgive them, and bring them back into the consultation. The reason why I say this is that what Gaza has shown us is that a lot of the limitations of the community are self-imposed. They are not imposed from the outside. Mm. The Muslim community in the U.S. today has the power to punish Biden. The reason that it's taking them so slow to organize in this regard is because the battle they are fighting now in order to prepare for the organization is not a battle against those seeking to repress them. It's the battle within the locks that they self-imposed in their own subconscious. Mm -hmm. The same way we have that here. Here when you're telling people, for example, and I've seen you, mashallah, on your social media, going around trying to tell people, let's come together and unite. And I can see the frustration in your face mm -hmm. when you are telling me the story of 50 different solutions. Mm -hmm. The reality is the reason you mobilize 
is because you believe there's a chance the Muslims can make a huge dent in these elections. Sure. And I know that Muslims sometimes, they don't take it when it comes from Sami because he looks like them or Jalal who looks like them. Andrew Ma <laughs> did a video for the New Statesman. For the Americans watching this, Andrew Ma is one of the top political commentators in the country. Yes. English, white, non-Muslim. Andrew Ma did a video for the New Statesman where he said, quote, I am hearing that imams up and down the country are telling their people that they should punish Labour and the Conservatives and they shouldn't vote for either. Yeah. And that they might, they're even thinking of putting up independent candidates in certain constituencies. And while some believe it to be hyper, and there are spreadsheets going around. Your spreadsheets, mashallah. <laughs> 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 you got Andrew Ma talking about it. Thank you. And, I, and Andrew Ma said this, while some people believe it to be hype and exaggeration, 30 seats in a tightly contested election decides who wins and who loses. Exactly. This is what I mean by an ummah that believes itself to be weak when everybody else believes it to have strength. Why did Blinken go to the regional powers to ask to tamp down on public opinion? What's the power he saw in the ummah that the ummah doesn't see in itself? What's the power that Israel sees in the ummah? By in, in the way that it goes to social media and tells it to limit hashtag Palestine and to shut down accounts and shadow ban, what is the power Netanyahu fears in the Ummah that the Ummah doesn't see in itself? What is it, the power that those who are passing laws to ban the boycott of Israel, what is the power they see in the way the Ummah can deploy to boycott? What is the power they see in the Ummah that the Ummah doesn't see in itself? That's why I think we live in a paradox. We live in our own alter reality world where it's almost as if those repressing the Ummah believe in the power of Allah more than the Muslim does. The Muslim says the Ummah is weak. The one repressing the Ummah says it's strong, I have to repress it. And that's why I think when it comes to the UK elections, let's be brutally honest. Let's analyze it politically. Labour are expected to win a landslide. What do you lose if you try? Mm. Labour are expected to win anyway. Why can't we test our power as Muslim constituencies by just, you lose, Labour's winning, winning. Mm. They're winning. You're not going to cause the dent that you think you're going to cause. Yeah. If it's a foregone conclusion, why don't we gamble? Why yeah. don't we have a candidate in a constituency where we think they can viably win? And let's see how many votes we can get. Yeah. West Streeting, you keep mentioning him, you know, that maybe we can do a dent of 5,000 or do a dent of 20,000 or the like. Why not? I saw numbers in Dallas, in the US, mm. where certain constituencies, there are like 7,000 votes for Muslims, for example. Only 1,500 went to vote. That remaining 5,500 vote, if they had gone, they would have tilted the balance of the elections. Right. That's what I mean when I say an ummah has power but refuses to use it because they mire themselves in debates that have no meaning. What Gaza has shown is that we didn't do enough. We didn't use our powers enough. We didn't build enough. We built, alhamdulillah. But we didn't build enough. And we found that the reason we didn't build enough was not because they told us not to build, because we refused to build because we were mired in the base that had no meaning. To answer your question directly, Muslims can have a huge impact in the UK elections, more than they think. Mm. If they can rally around the idea of punishing the candidates, not delivering, punishing the candidates, saying, I won't vote for the candidates that refuse to back a ceasefire, mm. whether it's Labour, Conservative or the like. When somebody steps up and he says, guys, I want to run on behalf, you know, to be the alternative candidate. Instead of rinsing him, we say, you know what? The Zionists allow somebody to make 15 mistakes and on the 16th attempt, they produce a mega company. I give you the permission to make five mistakes. Mm. Go. I'll support you. I'll trust you in this regard. Yeah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says about Sahaba, 
That they are tough on the disbelievers, on the oppressors. But this kuffar in this context is referring to those who oppress, to those who are actively committing wrong. But he says they are merciful between them. The obstacle we have in front of us is the current ummah is the opposite. They are tough on the believers and very soft on the oppressors. When Sheikh Umar Sulaiman does something that they believe to be so profoundly wrong, when he trips up as is natural of a human being, the reaction is not to say, Sheikh Umar, Barakallahu feek for taking the step that no one else wanted to take. Barakallahu feek for getting off your couch and doing something when everybody else is sitting on the couch. Yeah. I know you buckled slightly. Hey, get up. Let me dust down your trap and, and, and keep going. I got your back. Yeah. When these other mashaykh or Muhammad Jalal goes and tries to tell people and buckles, let's suppose you buckle along, you're human. Mm. You buckle along the way. Mm. Do you believe this is an ummah that would tell you, yeah, Muhammad Jalal, we know why you set out to do this. You buckled on this. Get up. Let me, or do you think it's an ummah that would tell you, yeah, look at this guy. Yeah. And that's why this is the conclusion that I want to make here. The Muslims in the US and the Muslims in the UK, though the dynamics are different, the premise remains the same. We have the power, as it stands, to cause a significant impact on the elections. The American Muslims have the chance for the first time in American history to bring down a sitting U.S. president. They are 1.7% of the population. It is as if Allah gave them the power to single-handedly bring down a genocidal maniac, genocide Joe, if they choose to deploy that power. One thing I always say about them is Allah gives us opportunities, but then sees if we will take those opportunities, which is why there is the hadith, if you take one step, Allah takes 10. Mm. The same here applies in the UK. We have a golden opportunity to test our strength as a Muslim electorate. We're all united now by Gaza. I'm seeing strange alliances, people who are Absolutely. slating each other left, right, center, who are now coming together. Yeah. The question is, will they take that opportunity? There is a call now to punish those who refuse to stand with the ceasefire. I've seen your website now, the muslimvote.co.uk, muslimvote.co.uk, muslimvote.com, muslimvote.co.uk. I see you gathered four organizations, very wise. So at least we spread the, the responsibility and spread mm. the burden. Will people go onto the website and see you, the information data that you've gathered painstakingly and decide and say, you know what, I want to be part of this movement. Labor will win anyway, but let me see how strong it is anyway. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think that going back now to the idea of the 13 years of the life of the Prophet Muhammad I like sometimes to throw controversial curveballs and I won't do one that gets you in trouble. Mm. But I always say sometimes to some, to some Muslims, who if I ask you a question and you ask me quickly without thinking, who do you prefer, Umar ibn Khattab or Abu Bakr al-Siddiq? People say Umar ibn Khattab. <laughs> but ask yourself why. Why do they prefer someone who said of himself, I am not even the equivalent of a hair on the chest of Abu Bakr al-Siddiq? And I tell you why. Because an ummah that feels believes itself to be defeated and self-traumatized is attracted to its misguided perception of strength <laughs> that they see in Umar ibn Khattab. They read about Abu Bakr Siddiq as somebody soft who used to cry in prayers and that kind of thing. And that, the reason I use that example is to highlight the glaring subversion of the understanding of Islam amongst many Muslims that they don't even realize they have in their subconscious. Yeah. Once you accept that, that's when you start reading the seerah from a different lens, where the first 13 years, you start seeing that that's what's relevant to what we're seeing today. The shift in public opinion. We don't have the tanks, we don't have the weapons, we don't have these things that you wish you had in order to bring the outcome, yes. Yeah. But that doesn't mean we're in a period of weakness because you cannot say the Muslims were in a period of weakness in the first 13 years. Mm. And the proof is what we discussed earlier. And when you come to those conclusions, 
I can't lie to you, Jalal. Bismillah, let's do it. The Muslims listening in America, what do you punish genocide? You do it for the sake of the ummah. Do it, don't let the ummah say that genocide Joe can commit a genocide against 20,000 Palestinians and still get a second term. Don't humiliate the ummah in this regard. Give the ummah some of its dignity as well. And even when Trump comes, Trump might not even be on the candidate. You know, the worst part is Trump might not even be on the candidate. When I was in America, the Colorado Supreme Court yes. disqualified him from the ballot. Yeah. The main election official disqualified him. You think that Trump might be on that. He might not even be on the ballot right. because Allah is the one who knows the situations. And that's where we finish on this point. I promise this is where I finish. Even though <laughs> someone made the meme, uh, Sammy, Sammy, I'll finish on this point, Hamdi. But, <laughs> but here's the point. A lot of it comes down to this. It's the idea that I want to see the outcome in my lifetime. Or I want to be the one who delivers the outcome. And the reason why I believe that's an almost un-Islamic concept, I didn't say it's not. The reason why I believe it's an almost un-Islamic concept is because when you read the Quran, Allah makes abundantly clear the outcome only belongs to him. Yes. When you read Surah Hud, you see it's all about prophets who go to their people and Allah says only a minority of their people believe. Hud salam, Salah salam, Shu'aib salam, Lut salam, Nuh salam. Not only that, these are prophets who make expressions of almost despair. Lut says in Surah Hud, yeah. If only I had power over you or, or, or power to resist or powerful ally to resist you. Yeah. Nuh does a lamentation in Surah Nuh where he says, Allah, I've called on my people day and night. The same way you're trying to do now, in, although you won't, inshallah, majority will believe in you. I called on my people day and night. And every time I call on them, they run away from me. And when I call on them so you might forgive them, they put their fingers in their ears and they cover their faces and they treat me with arrogance. Allah destroys all of those people. But no Muslim would dare to say that those prophets failed. Why? It's not just because they believe that it's haram or that it's wrong or you know they, they cringe at it. It's also because when they start thinking beyond the fact it's haram, they start to think, wait, why am I saying these prophets didn't fail? It's because you come to the conclusion that their duty was not to deliver the outcome. Their duty was to keep striving and mobilizing in the hope that they might be the vehicle to achieve the outcome. The same way that when you're talking to UK Muslims and you presented your question as we might not have the same impact, you don't know what impact we might have because we haven't tried to mobilize. We've never tested our power. We don't know the value of the Muslim vote yet because we've never as an organized bloc actually mobilized to try to achieve something. In Tower Hamlets, there are four or five Muslim candidates. Imagine if there was one Muslim candidate and they all rallied behind one. Nobody would win in Tower Hamlets. In other constituencies, it's the same. If there were one Muslim candidate instead of three or four, nobody would be able to beat the Muslim candidate in that constituency. We've never actually tried to do so. And that's why I think that Islam, in the way that it's a religion of action is that Allah rewards action. When you mobilize, that's when Allah opens the opportunities for you. That's when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala amplifies and makes that reward. And that's why I think that sometimes when we're discussing about the US politics or the UK politics, it's important to note here that what I'm saying is not that we will punish Biden or even that we will punish Keir Starmer. We may not, Jalal. Allah may have written that it's not to be. But that's not for me to decide. My point is I see an opportunity in front of me. It's up to me to decide whether I want to take it or not. And I ask Allah to guide us in the way that we take that opportunity and try to maximize that as well. Mm. And there are some who will listen to this. And this is why I wanted to finish on this particular point. Because <laughs> this, is the, this is the message that I want to leave every Muslim who thinks about this. Because many people say, what if Trump comes? What if this happens? It's all what ifs. 
But Allah is in control of the what-ifs. I have a battle in front of me. The battle in front of me is I saw 20,000 Palestinians genocide. And I saw, I've seen genocide live streamed in my lifetime. I've seen ethnic cleansing live stream in my lifetime. I saw a world that told me that human rights mattered. I saw them throw it out the window be just because the Palestinians don't look the way they do. I saw the world throw out international law that it implemented on everybody but itself. I saw the Western world go and throw out the laws and the cases just to facilitate that ethnic cleansing and genocide. I saw the Western world that preached freedom impose restrictions and repression because it was terrified that freedom would result in sympathy for the Palestinians. I saw the greatest hypocrisy of the century right before my eyes. And I'm supposed to sit down and say, what ifs? There's a battle before me that we have to fight. It's the war of narratives. Don't tell me what if. I see a man who committed genocide. I see a man who facilitated it. I see a man who supported the ethnic cleansing. And somebody is telling me, what if somebody is worse? Am I supposed to let him continue with the second term after massacring the people like this? What justice on earth? What interest, self-interest on earth would lead anybody to consider that there is a just scenario that allows him to win that second term? How can it even be a discussion? And that's why when people say to me, look beyond what if, the story of Surah Al-Kahf between Musa and Khidr, alayhim as-salam, is that when Khidr knows the unknown of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, know that Musa is told by Allah that Khidr knows unknown knowledge, that doesn't stop Musa from rebuking Khidr. Because Musa sees only what's in front of him and does his duty based on what's in front of him. Allah will deal with the unknown. When Khidr goes and he puts the hole in the boat of the people who, of the poor people, and Musa says, why are you doing this? You're doing an injustice. Musa is doing it based on what he sees. I've seen genocide. I will do what Musa salam, did. Because Khidr, that was a relationship between him and Allah. I'll do what Musa did and I will stand against the genocide joke. Because I tell you what the outcome every Muslim should see. It's not perfection in this dunya. For Allah would not be Ghafoor Rahim if the aim was perfection. Allah would not be the forgiving if it would not have named himself the forgiving or the one accessory apprentice if it was perfect. The greatest outcome a Muslim can have and the honor that Gaza has given us, the honor Gaza has given us, is Gaza has given us the chance, all of us, the chance to be vehicles to bring about this change, vehicles to make a difference. Ya Muhammad Jalal. When I see that public opinion has had such a sweeping impact on the position of nation states, I am proud and honored that you brought me to Thinking Muslim podcast and that I believe, even if it's just an atom, I believe we contributed to that. Sure. I believe that when I see that public opinion is making the Democrats panic, and I know it wasn't bin Salman, who in the through Gaza has launched his dog fashion show and brought Shakira and is planning to bring Iggy Azalea and all these other sports. I know it wasn't him who brought the change. I know it was the ordinary Muslim who mobilized. When people talk about fatigue, I don't understand it because you're seeing the change that's being made. I believe Gaza gave us the honor to be vehicles. And the reason why I say this is that I believe that every Muslim, when they look at what's happening in Gaza, when they believe they don't have the power, they should remember one thing, that the ultimate aim of a Muslim is not perfection in this dunya, 
It's being able to look the Prophet Muhammad in the face on the day of judgment when you enter Jannah and say, Ya Rasulullah, I didn't have the powers I wish I had, but I still kept going. And this is the scenario I imagine. I hope one day, inshallah, that the ultimate outcome for every Muslim is that when we're lying on our deathbeds and the soul leaves our body, and it may well, it may well be that we die in the middle of another genocide, seeing another genocide unfold. We die through tears that we weren't able to stop it or weren't able to do anything else. Mm. We may die and say, Ya Rabb, I'm leaving a world that is even more horrific and disgusting than the, the one I left it. And you weep, even though through your life you kept striving, mobilizing, shouting, tweeting, charities like you going up around the country trying to mobilize, you're saying 50 different things and people won't listen to you or they're like, Ya Allah, I try like Nuh. You lie on your deathbed and you think, Ya Allah, I didn't achieve anything. When your soul leaves your body, at least Muhammad Jalal, you won't hear, Ya Ayatuhan Nafsul Khabitha. You won't hear, oh, disgusting soul, soul that did nothing, soul that sat at home, soul that told people there's no point, soul that said the system was rigged, soul that said, oh, what are you doing? There's no point in doing that. Or soul that you will hear instead, ya ayyatuhan nafsul mutma'inna. Oh, beautiful, sweet-smelling soul. Oh, lovely soul that kept striving even when the odds were against you. That kept speaking even when the world was against you. That kept making effort after effort even when you never saw its fruits. That kept going and telling people to keep going even though you felt that you wouldn't see the outcome in your lifetime. That you kept going even through the despair, even through the heartbreak, even when you felt that it was futile. You kept going and you kept mobilizing only because you believed that Allah was in charge of the outcome and victory was eventually coming. And that alone was worth mobilizing and worth moving. The angels will say, guys, there is a sweet, I don't know if they say guys, but the angels will say there is a sweet smelling soul that is coming up. This is a soul that kept striving, that kept mobilizing, even though they never saw the outcome. So let me tell you. Allah is pleased with you. We are, as you're going up, Allah is pleased with you. And this is the scenario. And I promise this is where I finish. I promise. I promise. You know, for me, the most beautiful scenario I can imagine, in my opinion, and it might not be a beautiful scenario for other people, but this is what I imagine. It may well be we might not see Quds liberated in our lifetime. Prophet never saw it liberated in his lifetime. Let's be honest. When he died, he was in charge of Mecca, Medina, some parts of Yemen and some parts of the Arabian Peninsula. When he died, he was asked by the angels, do you want to stay in this dunya and see the fruits of your labor or do you want to go back to Jannah? Note how the Prophet Muhammad did not choose to stay in the dunya, he chose to go back. Why? Because the Prophet knew the outcome belonged to Allah. He was fine. He said, Allah will sort that out. I'm ready to go back to Jannah. Such was the level of trust in Allah's outcome. The Prophet ﷺ never saw Islam in London. He never saw the Thinking Muslim podcast. He never saw Islam in LA or in Dallas al-Sharif or, uh, <laughs> or, in, or in Argentina. Or the, but he didn't need to because he was the vehicle. That was the honor. And this is the scenario I imagine. And this is where I finish. I wanted to finish on this point. Yes. I imagine one day if Allah accepts our efforts, inshallah, and if Allah you know, rewards us with it, and it's something that we pray for, and, and I hope one day, even if we're not deserving of it, Allah in His mercy will give it to us, which is genital for those. I imagine one day, Muhammad Jal, me and you, and the other people in this room, Inshallah. we're sitting in the gathering of the Prophet Muhammad and we arrive, this is what I imagine, I imagine we arrive and we walk, and we say, Assalamu Alaikum, and I say, Wa Alaikum Assalam, and Salahuddin Ayyubi is just finishing his story, telling Umar ibn Khattab how he liberated Al-Aqsa. And I always imagine maybe a conversation with Umar ibn Khattab saying, but when you entered, Ya Salahuddin, did you uphold the rights of the Jews and the Christians? Did you do to them what... What, what they did to us, or did you uphold the Islamic way? We know they are anti-Semites. We know they persecute the Jews, but Muslims don't. What did you do with the Jews after you entered Jerusalem? Salah al-Ubi would say, we brought them back and gave them sanctity and comfort. Because every time anti-Semitic Europe would persecute them, whether in Spain or in Poland or after the Holocaust, they always came to the Muslim lands. Umar Khattab would say, Ahsant. Mm -hmm. 
And then we sit down, we say, Salam alaikum ya Rasulullah. And we sit down with the Sahaba and they will say, which generation are you from? And it's, we, we might say, we're from a generation that didn't achieve much materially, but we did the best that we could. And then another man will come afterwards and he'll sit, or, or a sister, and they, will, and, they, and they will come and sit. They'll say, Salam alaikum salam. Which generation are you from? We're from the generation that liberated Al-Aqsa after his generation there. Mm. And we will be excited, envious, excited, but envious in a good way. We wish we'd been that generation, but tell us how it was done. Do you know what I want to hear? I hope that I hear one day. I hope that the person turns around to me in New Jersey and he says, you know, when I was a kid, I heard the Thinking Muslim podcast. <laughs> and I saw the efforts of those who came before us, those who liberated the Muslim world from colonization in the 1950s, 1960s, paved the way for our semi-independence. The Arab Spring that showed us that authoritarian regimes are not invincible. And then those Muslims who emerged and said, you could be Muslim and you could preserve your deen and you could succeed in life. And that they changed public opinion. They broke Israel's monopoly over the narrative, which allowed us to speak more freely. We were able to call it an apartheid regime. Then we were able to take opportunities. And I hope one day that he says to Rasulullah, and he says to him, Ya Rasulullah, but for these people, we wouldn't have liberated Al-Aqsa, though they, perhaps they didn't achieve it in their lifetimes. Ya Rasulullah, they are the one's deserving of the credit. That's the scenario I imagine, inshallah. That's the scenario that I hope, even if I don't achieve accent. But what I do know is we have to keep moving. And that's why if you can't fly, run. If you can't run, walk. If you can't walk, crawl. But I promise you, Wallahi alladhi la ilaha illahu, blinking buckled because of public opinion, when the ummah roared and raised the voices of the Palestinians. Netanyahu buckled, bin Salman buckled, bin Zayed buckled, Erdogan buckled. All of these people, they buckled, not because they wanted to do anything for, the, for Gaza, but because public opinion forced them to adopt positions that they did not want to adopt. When a Muslim tells me that they feel tired, I can't understand it because how can you see Blinken go from no ceasefire to sustainable ceasefire? How can you see that shift that's taking place and know it's because of you and feel fatigued? Instead, we are winning the battle after battle after battle. It's hard, it's turbulent, but we have to keep going. And now we have the chance, even in these elections, to make an impact. And even the next four or five years to plug those gaps in the industries where we found ourselves exposed. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who knows the outcome. All I know is there's a battle in front of us. Let's fight this battle, then deal with the outcomes afterwards. And may Allah give us every success Amen. in this battle, inshallah. Sami Hamdi, I've got one last question for you. Um, you described there a very evocative scene of Jannah. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow me to be in your company in, in Jannah, Amen. inshallah ta'ala. And with the Prophet Ali salatu wasalam, and with Salahuddin Ayyubi and everyone that you've mentioned there. I was thinking when you, when you said that, um, there are people who we come across in Gaza who have the the qualities of the Sahaba. They have these jannati qualities that we can, we can, um, we can point to. Um, it is often the case that when we look at our generation, we see ourselves to be beneath previous generations. You know, um, we see ourselves to have, to be those, the froth on the ocean. You know, those people who don't really have uh, the sway and the charisma and the strength of, um, uh, of, um, of those who came before us. And maybe we imagine that that's gone. Those days are over. We're never going to get a Salahuddin again. We're never going to get a Khalid bin Walid again, let alone Ibn Taymiyyah or whoever in our, in our Islamic history. That period's over. How do you contend with that type of notion? Who would you like? And maybe a more, more direct question. Who do you see from amongst us that you would like to be in Jannah with, um, inshallah ta'ala, if we, if we reach that lofty position? One of the things that is fascinating about the way that hadith is used is that that hadith is often used to denote the weakness of the ummah. Yeah. But when you look at that hadith, that hadith is less about the power of the ummah and more about the state of the ummah. And I explain the difference between the two. The Prophet ﷺ did not say the ummah would have no power. 
He would say that the Ummah would be like the froth of the sea, leaving room for an interpretation that the Ummah would have power but not use that power. That it would be incapable of using that power. And the reason why I say this is that when you look at the trajectory of the Ummah, the first thing is you have to reconcile that hadith with the ayat of the Quran that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is always in control of all affairs. And that Allah gives victory to whom He wills. Mm. Allah did not say He gives victories to certain generations. Allah says He gives victory to whom He wills, implying it's an eternal situation, it's an eternal point. The second point is, people often read the hadith, ignoring the recent historical victories of the Ummah. By that I mean that the way the Ummah was liberated from colonization 60 years ago, where we talk about the Arab Spring, even we talk about the period between the 1960s and 1990s, the US was unable to establish a single military base in the region because despite these rulers that many like to paint very simplistically were puppets of the West, which they weren't. One of the things that is worth noting is this, a lot of the crisis in the Muslim countries, we have to be fair, during that period, were less about Western intervention and more about fitna between ourselves. In the same way that we saw Ali ibn Abi Talib and Muawiyah fight between themselves, two very good men, Ali ibn Abi Talib of course being much better man. But the point is that we saw even good men fight between themselves. We saw even Sahaba go fitna between themselves. There's nothing wrong in saying that during that period, we also saw fitna between them. The reason why I say this is during that period, the Americans were desperate for a, for a military base, but no one would give them one until Saddam invaded Kuwait and Kuwait invited them in. That's why Saddam at the time, the, people, the reason people say it was a huge mistake, irrespective of what Kuwait was doing, was that he gave the door that allowed the Americans to finally get into the region and finally establish their military base. The reason why I say this is that when you look at the way the Ummah has progressed, when you look at it from the French perspective, they colonized the Muslim world for 132 years in Algeria. Do you think they ever expected that the heroes of the new French generation would be the Muslim Paul Pogba, Muslim N'Golo Kante, Muslim Karim Benzema? Did you ever envisage that the Americans, when they brutalized the Muslims abroad, expected that they would ever have an election where those very Muslims in the belly of the beast would now potentially have the deciding vote in an upcoming election? Yeah. Did you ever envisage that the Britain, which used to rule an empire where the sun never sets, where Winston Churchill says the dog in the major doesn't have any right to the Palestinian land. Do you think Churchill ever envisaged a scenario where Sami Hamdi and Mohammed Jalal now have the power in the upcoming UK elections to deliver a body blow to the Labour and the Conservatives if only they can rally the Muslim vote and rally them behind a particular candidate? Do you think that these powers always existed? They are relatively new. And the reason that they are new, the reason that they exist today is because of the efforts of the Ummah in moving forward and mobilizing. And that's why the people of Jannah are not the people of those you see on the podiums who celebrate at the end of the victory. The people of the Jannah are those who strove and those who mobilized, even though they never saw the outcome. Musa ibn Umayr radiallahu anhu, the first diplomat of Islam, who went to Medina to pave the way for the Prophet sallallahu to come, never saw Fatah Mecca. He never saw the liberation of Mecca. He never saw the Prophet sallallahu in a position of, according to modern standards, strength. He saw the Prophet, when he left the Prophet sallallahu he left him in a state where the Prophet sallallahu was, according to political analysts, weak. You can imagine, he probably died saying, Ya Allah, please protect the Prophet, for I'm going back to you while he's still in this particular situation. Does that mean Musa bin Umayr failed? Do you think he's sitting in Jannah going, oh, I wish I'd stayed until Fatah Mecca instead of coming here to Jannah? The reality is when, you, when I went to, in the Turkish elections, when Erdogan, everybody thought he would lose. So part of me felt that as a result of Erdogan's pragmatism, he's undermining the Muslim movement in Turkey. Mm. And that the Muslim movement needs to badly reflect that this pragmatism Erdogan demonstrated cannot be the final solution. There must be another way forward and there must be a way to, you know, find, find, you know, recorrect the trajectory. A Turkish imam said to me, Sami, I agree with all of your criticism of Erdogan. All of it. 
I said, so maybe, maybe, maybe he should lose the election so the Muslim movement can. He said, Erdogan is the product of my grandfather who was executed for teaching Quran, of my grandfather who was abused for wearing the hijab, of our forefathers who kept Islam alive when Ataturk was desperately trying to chain it. We are the ones who suffered in order to finally bring back Erdogan. He's not the final product. He's not the perfect product. But he's the result of our efforts where we are breaking the system, a system that was designed against us. We broke it and we're making it now work for us. Yeah. Sami, he said, we will fix Erdogan, not Europe and America. Mm -hmm. We will fix Erdogan because we believe that he is the product of our jihad, fi sabilillah, because when we could have laid down and allowed Ataturk to have his way, we said, no, we will never allow Turkey to become a land where they don't say, la ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah. When I look at the Bosnians and I go to them, these Bosnians, the, you know, the, in the 1940s, in 1938, they had this Muslim question. A big communist thinker, he said, we have an issue of this Muslim identity. They don't identify on ethnicities. So their solution was not to say, let's understand Islam. Their solution was to execute students who led Muslim associations and imprison the others. That 22, 23 year old executed because his only crime was la ilaha illallah Muhammad and he died proud. He refused to budge on it. And the others, he, they, they died, when they died, communism was rife and the Muslims were being persecuted. You cannot say those people, these are the people of Jannah. Mm. And the Bosnians continued, even after the Serbian genocide, today Islam roars in Bosnia in the heart of Europe. Mitterrand is reported as telling Bill Clinton, I will not accept Islam, Islamic State in the heart of Europe. Today, regardless of what Mitterrand wanted, Bosnia is a Muslim majority state in the heart of Europe. Not because they're being forced to accept Islam, but because despite genocide and persecution, and, and bullying, and despite all of these things that were committed against them, they, they could have said, we no longer believe, khalas, accept us. They refused to let go of la ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah. And we're not just talking about hijabis. I was on a train going from Mostar to Sarajevo to try to tell, because sometimes we take the groups from Sarajevo to Mostar and the bus journey is a bit tiring. Mm -hmm. I thought, let's try the train. There's a lady sitting next to me. Uh, she's maybe 65 years old, 60 years old, wearing a tight, you know, like shorts and wearing a tight top and her hair is a bit short. I'm talking to an Australian Bosnian about Bosnia, and I said, you know, but I want to understand where the hatred comes that led to that genocide. And she looks at me with her eyes, face, fire in her eyes. She goes, it's because we're Muslim and we never gave up Allah and his prophet. And I had goosebumps when she said it to me like that. This is an ummah when you, when you learn about it, when you see it. These, in my opinion, these are the people of Jannah. Be people who when the world turns against them, when the odds turn against them, when the world tells them, give up La ilaha Muhammad Rasulullah and we will stop persecuting you. Give up La ilaha Muhammad Rasulullah. And you, the French, when they were in Algeria, they said, we want here as a civilizing mission. Islam is backwards. Just leave Islam and be French and we will give you equal rights. They used to celebrate when the Algerians would speak French or the like. The reason the French were horrified is because after 132 years of the civilizing mission, the Algerians still roared on independence in 1962. Oh Muhammad, Prophet Muhammad Congratulations, Algeria has been returned to you. And the French said, what is it about this deen that means that we can commit genocide, ethnic cleansing, persecution, ban their religion, ban their language, and the like, and they refuse to give up on La ilaha Muhammad Rasulullah. That's why the people of Jannah, you mentioned Salahuddin Ayyubi. The problem I feel with this Ummah is we only believe people of Jannah are people like Salahuddin Ayyubi, not those behind the scenes that you never heard of that gave their lives for their struggle because they weren't interested in the applause, they weren't interested in the fame. They were a people who believe that Allah knows their deeds, Allah knows what they're doing, and they believe because they loved Allah as if they could see Him, they died 
died in, in with nobody knowing who they were, but they paved the way for me and you to take liberties to then assess whether what they did was right or wrong while they sit in Jannah, while we're here still desperate, unsure, even if we will go to Jannah or not. And that's the point when you say the people of Jannah. I no longer believe the people of Jannah are the grand individuals. Or be, I believe Sahadin Ayyub is with Jannah. I believe, you know, when you meet these people, and this is what I always tell people sometimes, and I promise I finish on this note. I think the greatest crime that colonization did to the Muslim Ummah was not just the physical. They electrocuted my grandfather. They chopped off the breast of his. My, my, my great uncle was 18, 19 when he was killed by the French. One day the French soldiers, they saw one of his cousins, his, the, she was pregnant. So the French, they mocked. They said, let's find out the gender of the baby. What they meant, and they took out the knife and they were ready to slit her belly open to bring, that's what the French used to do in Algeria. He saw and he panicked. So he picked up a rifle and he shot the four French soldiers. They came into his house and riddled him with bullets afterwards. The point is the French did horrific things in Algeria. But still, even so, when I look at what these, these people did, the people who refused to give Islam, the ordinary people, that's why when Heraclius says, who are the people who follow this prophet? They said it's the weakest of society or those we consider the lowest. And Heraclius said, this was the way of the prophets before. And that's why I think if you're an ummah that looks down on that but only looks up, you're already looking in the wrong direction. You're already looking in the wrong way. The Prophet could have bought Quraysh. He could have taken the money and he could have, he chose not to because he knew the deen is not delivered by money. The deen is not delivered by this sort of influence. The deen is delivered by the hearts of the ordinary people. By Sumayya who dies before Fatah Mecca. She dies in Quraysh before they even go to Medina after just turning to Islam. By Musa ibn Umayyad, by Ham Anhu, who dies in Uhud and having never seen the Fatah Mecca, all the other Sahaba who died beforehand. You see all of these, none of these Sahaba failed. They were pillars that we stood on. And that's why I come back to this conclusion when I said be their vehicle. I, I believe this Ummah will have glory when the Muslim believes that there is just as much honor in dying the way Musab ibn Umayr did as being Salahuddin al-Ayyubi. This Ummah will thrive when it realizes that Musab ibn Umayr who died before Fatah Mecca has just as much glory as the Sahaba who entered Mecca itself with the Prophet Muhammad When we reorient what it means to be great in Islam, when we finally realize that it's not Muslims that make Islam great, it's not Salahuddin Ayyubi that made Islam great, it's Islam that made Salahuddin Ayyubi great. When we realize that it's not us that makes Allah great, it's not us doing the favor for Allah, it's Allah who makes us great by allowing us to be vehicles and then rewarding us even if we don't get to the outcome. Rewarding the Quran teacher who gets executed for teaching Quran but rewards him because he kept the message of Islam alive teaching a generation that produced Erdogan Erdogan learned from this generation and so did the others and remember and, and I promise this is where I finish there is a book on, on, on Algeria that I bought uh, in order to try to see why the French don't apologize for colonization I wanted just to see from their perspective I said you know what forget complaining let me see the book he identifies two turning points the one is the massacre that we talked about in previous podcasts but the second he identifies is 1920s when Abdul Hamid bin Badis and the Council of Islamic Scholars revitalized the Algerian identity with Islam because 30 years later, the generation that entered the FLN that would liberate Algeria were fluent in Islam, fluent in Arabic, fluent in their identity. After being battered by the French, those scholars revived it. They revived the deen. That's why when people talk about our oh, Quran, it's fundamental, it's so important. And that's the point I want to make. To answer your question short terms, you ask me who 
are the people you want to be with in Jannah? I've come to realize that the people of Jannah are not the ones on the podiums, albeit may Allah give them Jannah. The people of Jannah are those who never wanted the podiums and were ready to sacrifice their lives for Allah so I might have the liberty to shout in front of a microphone and tell people, please punish genocide, Joe. Thank you very much for your time. Please remember to subscribe to our social media and YouTube channels and head over to our website thinkingmuslim.com to sign up to my weekly newsletter. Jazakallah khair. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.